Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Today is Monday, February 15th, 2021, starting at 12.23 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 291st episode of the show. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with T. Susan Chang about tarot and astrology as forms of divination. Uh, so hey, Susan, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Longtime listener and fan. Longtime listener, first time, first time caller? Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. correct. As they say. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk with you today. So to introduce you to my audience, you are the co-host of the Fortune's Wheelhouse Esoteric uh, Tarot Podcast, and you're also the author of the 2019 Llewellyn book Tarot Correspondences, Ancient Secrets for Everyday Readers. 2018. As well as mm -hmm. 2018, yeah. Sorry, mm -hmm. thank you. As well as the author of a new book titled 36 Secrets, A Decanic Journey Through the Minor Arcana of the Tarot, which just came out, what, a month or two ago, right? Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I decided I really wanted to have it out for uh, for the new year. So on literally New Year's Eve, I was working until 9 p.m. <laughs> on I indexing. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, so here's a little uh, picture of the book for the people that watch the video version. Uh, here is the cover of your previous book, and they make a nice pair together. So um, your specialty is tarot, and mm -hmm. um, your podcast, you're the co-host. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So um, it's a collaborative venture between me and Mel Moline, who is an incredibly gifted deck creator. Her decks are the Rosetta Tarot and the Tabula Mundi Tarot, both of which are Thoth Tarot-based. Um, she also has a new majors-only um, deck called the Pharos, or Lighthouse you know, Tarot. So um, yes, and I can't even remember what year we started now. I think it must have been 2000, 2017 or 18, and we had just decided that we wanted to provide a service for people in the sense that there was no card-by-card -card, uh, podcast out there that really looked at the symbols and the correspondences in any systematic way. And we wanted to build a bridge between uh, Rider-Waite-Smith readers and Thoth readers um, through, the, through the esoteric connections that unite them. Okay, brilliant. And you've done, you're up to actually like, like a ton of episodes at this point, right? Yes, we made it through the entire first 78, and then we started sort of uh, Taking it layer by layer, you know, going through number, going through signs, going through planets, those kinds of things. So, uh, okay. yeah, we're a hundred something at this point. Cool. Um, mm -hmm. And people, you post that normally. Um, you release episodes on Patreon, but people can also find it on Libsyn and and basically anywhere where podcasts can be listened to. Right. Right. That's Fortune's Wheelhouse. Anywhere. Okay. Cool. Mm -hmm. um, when did you get into tarot, or how long have you been studying it? <laughs> so um, I saw my first tarot deck, I think, in 1987. Um, I was, I had just arrived in college, and I had a roommate down the hall who had a tarot deck, and mm. I, I had never seen anyone do anything like that. I thought it was a absurd, you know, and b impossible. Uh, but C, compelling. So, you know, I, I was one of those people who just kind of kept checking in and trying to get free readings and 
than trying to figure out how she did it. So, um, so yeah, right. but I, I was not about to, you know, go. Isn't, isn't that the classic <laughs> thing? Like where everybody's <laughs> impulse eventually, most astrologers or most tarot people, your impulse that leads them to doing it is kind of like cutting out the middleman. Uh, exactly. And learning how to do it yourself. Exactly. Because, you know, I mean, you can't constantly ask your friend to tell you about your crush, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, but I didn't really, um, I don't think I bought or picked up my own uh, first tarot deck until several years later when I was living in New York um, and trying kind of everything, you know, how when you're a young person, kind of all the breaks come off and you try everything you always wanted to try. And that was tarot for me. So I think I... I got my first deck in probably 1995, 1996, something like that. Okay. And um yeah, and so I really read for uh a good uh number of years just for friends and family. I also did some moonlighting in the um in the theater district in New York where I lived at the time and that's a great place to read tarot. <laughs> mm. People have interesting problems. Um but then, yeah, but I didn't really go pro with it until 2015 or so because, you know, I was busy with other careers. My first career, I was an editor for Oxford University Press and, and Cambridge University Press. I kind of went back and forth. And then my second career was as a food writer and cookbook reviewer. So this was... Um, this you was published like a memoir in 2011 I did. related to that, right? Yes, I did. A Spoonful of Promises, you know, despite the fact that probably no one should publish a memoir before they're 40, but <laughs> but I did. Sure. And uh, that, that grew out of a bunch of work I did for NPR on uh, writing about food for them. So let's see. So yeah, so I, I started out, um, as far as tarot goes, I, I think what really happened was that I discovered the online tarot community in 2015. And that was kind of what I needed as a permission structure to take take myself a little bit further with it. And at mm. first, all I did was um, <laughs> was make tarot cases for people, which I sewed, uh, because that didn't seem like an intellectual investment that anyone could be ashamed of me for. Mm. But uh, but then, yeah. But inevitably, I think you know I had a real attraction to the correspondences. And to the obviously to the work I had had for decades, so so yeah, I, I guess I really wanted to learn some of the systems that were behind um, behind the tarot or apparently behind the tarot, and see what sense I could make of that. And that's really how all of that began. That makes sense. And um, are you okay sharing your your birth chart just for the sort of biographical side of this? Yes, I'm totally okay with that. Okay, so I'll put it on the screen here. So it's um, August 26, 1969 at 7.42 p.m. in New York, New York. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have Pisces rising and um, a bunch of stuff in Virgo, the sun, south node. Unsurprisingly. Pluto, <laughs> yeah, Pluto and Mercury, uh, Jupiter, Uranus conjunction in Libra, and then Mars in Sagittarius with the midheaven. Mm -hmm. uh, Neptune at 26 Scorpio, Saturn in Taurus, uh, and Venus in Cancer, and the Moon in Aquarius, which I am personally a big fan of as a fellow Moon in Aquarius. Ah, uh, yes. What degree are you? 
I'm 24, so that's pretty oh, close. Oh, wow. Yeah. So so one thing you'll notice on um, on the spine of my book is that there's uh, the Deccans for Aquarius 3. That's up at the top there, the Seven of Swords. Oh, I like and that. Then the, uh, and then the Virgo one at the bottom. Okay. That's so really cool. Those are my sun and moon. Yeah. There it is. Um, so let's see. Um, where do we want to go here? So part of the genesis of this episode was that a few years back, I think it was in 2018, you wrote me an email after listening to an episode of the podcast, which was um, episode 163 with Adam Ellenboss and Joe Gleason, where we talked about why horoscopes are still valid and important. And some of the things that Adam had mentioned in particular about astrology and its connection with divination had sparked some thoughts in you about some of the parallels with tarot. And um, I thought we could have a good discussion, and you had originally proposed a discussion talking about some of the similarities between the two. And it's kind of an interesting topic how something like tarot as a form of divination could inform how we understand what astrology is as a phenomenon, because um, astrology in modern times at least isn't often conceptualized as a form of divination. It used to be in the ancient world in some ways or in, in some circles was considered to be originally a form of divination, especially in Mesopotamia. But then sort of after Ptolemy, after the second century, for a long time astrology was instead viewed more as like a natural phenomenon or an extension of physics or something like that. And we still have a lot of that conceptualization in our in our mindset today when it comes to astrology. It's not really until recently, until 1994, when Jeffrey Cornelius published the book The Moment of Astrology, where he made this argument where he pointed out that astrology actually, even though we're used to conceptualizing it as a natural phenomenon, he argued that it's actually divination, just like tarot or other forms of divination. And since then that's become a more popular argument, but it's not something that has been explored with too much additional depth beyond Jeffrey Cornelius's work. So I thought that would be a really interesting discussion for us to have today. Yes, I think that that's really interesting, especially, you know, the ways that tarot and astrology are similar similar in the ways that they're really quite different. So um yes, I think that's a fascinating place to start. Okay, excellent. Um, and people can go back and check out. I only have an audio version of it on the podcast website, but I was episode fifty-three. I interviewed Jeffrey Cornelius about his book, <laughs> The Moment of Astrology, just to get more background and detail on that book. It is a great um, episode. I just listened to it uh, last night at one point seven x. Okay, <laughs> to get ready. <laughs> Getting prepped up <laughs> for this. Great. Yeah, I was scrambling yeah. to put together my outline and yeah. doing some research in your book, as well as another book on Mesopotamian divination to go way back in the history. But mm-hmm. maybe let's start at square one. In your original email, you mentioned how astrology compares to, and you used the term sortilege as a generic term for like different types of divination, right? Yes, I did. I mean, I think that there is a Mm. There is a fundamental split between sortilege or aleatory forms of divination versus, I don't know whether you want to call it fixed or um, the clockworks of astrology. I mean, I, I was trying to think about that and uh, and about different sorts of divinations and where they fall along that spectrum. There's um, there's this really great book I just pulled off my shelf. Um, 
It's a very 101 level book, but it's the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Divination. And you can, okay. uh, it's really a lot of fun to look through the different, uh, different sorts. But, uh, but I was thinking about how, you know, uh, some forms of div- divination depend on um, a fixed text, for example, um, you know, palmistry, right? The hand doesn't change rapidly. You know, it's um, it's if you you can do divination by palmistry, but you kind of know what you're dealing with. It's not going to be way different tomorrow than it is today. Um, okay. I I think astrology is like that as well. You know, you kind of know where the stars are going to be. Um, the bibliomancy is like that, right? You have the text. You may be opening it at random, but you have the text. It's not going to change tomorrow. Um, and you know, even some there are some natural cyclical mantic um methods that are like that i mean if you imagine uh reading clouds for example you know there are larger cycles but yet it's not going to it's it's not as apparently random as something like um dice or tarot or geomancy or the i ching all of which are based on random drawing Okay, so those are instances of sortilege, and I and I looked for a definition, and Google's definition was, "quote the practice of foretelling the future from a card or other item drawn at random from a collection." Right. So so integral to this, the definition of many of these forms of divination is the idea of something being drawn at random, um, and this element of like chance. Being mm-hmm. an, an important underlying component to it, but instead of like in modern times, we think of something that's random or chance-like as meaningless. Um, there's an actual flipped or like opposite assumption, especially in the ancient world, that the random or chance-like characteristic of that um, there's actually a, a meaningfulness or a purposefulness underlying it, and that's why you can actually learn valid information from it. Yes, yes, and I think that's why um that's why, you know, the horary branch of astrology is a little bit more like tarot that way. Sure. And let's let's, let's keep mm-hmm. it out of astrology for now and no <laughs> transition. Let's just assume our our listener has no idea what tarot is or how it works or like what the background mm-hmm. is. So in tarot, let's say as a form of that type of divination, if we're just deep diving into the ni- the concept of sortilege, Mm-hmm. The random element is that you have a deck of how many cards? 78. 78 mm-hmm. cards. And then each mm-hmm. time you will sh- shuffle them randomly, and then you'll pull out, let's say if you're just doing a basic three-card draw, you'll pull out three cards, right? Um, yes, yes. And um, for me, also every day I'll, do, I'll draw a card of the day, two cards of the day. Many people have this practice. Some draw one, some draw two. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's certain meanings that are associated with the cards, and then the presumption is that though the specific cards that you pull, whether it's two cards or three cards, is going to actually reflect something either about there's like a division here between two types of divination, either about that moment and something that's happening in that moment and telling you something about it, or alternatively, um, some later forms of divination. You could actually approach them and ask a specific question, and that something about the outcome or the answer to that question would be reflected in the random um, cards that you draw at that time. 
Yes. And I think there's something really important about the random quality of tarot and other methodologies because, you know, there's, um, I, I think of chaos and, um, I think of chaos as being a necessary component because there's, it's a way of breaking out of that sort of linear causal mentality that we all kind of live with as, you know, uh, people who are brought up in a Western civilization. You know, I think there's, it's really hard to um, enter the oracular space. And for me, at least, tarot was always, always had this appeal because it broke all of those, you know, all of those preconceptions immediately. Mm. You know, as you were saying, the, um, the, the sort of naturalistic view, causal view of astrology, you know, leaves some room for you to say, okay, well, there are beams or influences or rays or whatever. Tarot mm. doesn't do any of that. You know, right. it's immediately like you just throw the keys out the window. It's, it's so, so just like obvious that there should be, just rationally speaking, no connection between, you know, the fact that you just went through like a breakup or something like that, and then you randomly mm -hmm. draw three cards and it perfectly actually describes your situation or describes something about what you're feeling internally uh, in your mind at that moment that there should be no connection between the two but for some reason that there there is there is right and i think you know there's a lot of different uh ways that people conceptualize that but the one that i've sort of uh come down to accepting is that uh i think jung describes it in the um forward to Wilhelm's I Ching edition that you know we're dealing with we're we're dealing with the world as a whole the unus mundus you know every every part of the world is interconnected with everything else so all you have to do is look at a little piece of it to get the truth of the whole rather than you know trying to sort of step by step figure out the causes that lead from one place to another it's sort of like, you know, causal versus a-causal thinking is sort of like, you know, if you imagine cause as like a marble run where <laughs> first you drop it here and then it sets, you know, it drops into this ramp and it sets off this chain of dominoes, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know, a-causal thinking is more like you imagine a whole set of interlocked gears. You move one, you move them all, hmm. right? So to me, that's that's what we're doing in the oracular moment. It's a way of, uh, the chaos is a way of saying, look, my ego, my consciousness, my projections don't matter one bit, right? Um, just give me, just, just agree to work with me in this moment and give me something that will uh, create a conversation between the subject and the object. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I like that. And so synchronicity and was Jung's attempt to like formulate a definition of what was going on there, especially when it came to his investigations of different forms of divination in order to explain how they would work if there was no causal connection between, let's say, the cards and what he was thinking at that moment, but instead the connection between the two just had to do with an equivalency of meaning and a, a simultaneousness in time, basically. Yes, yes. I mean, some Jungians have sort of uh, conceptualized it as being sort of the intersection of two wheels, one that's like a wheel of eternal order, 
which is apart from what we think of as chronological time, and then a wheel of time in the other direction, which is what we experience. And where the two intersect, um, I've seen the analogy used of, it's an alchemical term, the um, the spiraculum eternitatis, the eternal breathing hole, the air hole, where in this moment, which I think corresponds to the oracular moment, you have an intersection between those two systems where you can find something that's true. Okay. Um, and just to give people an example for, let's say, if somebody isn't familiar with tarot and how it works and like the mechanics of it, let's say that you were doing, you have a, a deck of a full deck of cards, and then you pull out, let's say, three cards. Mm -hmm. um, and let's say we're doing a basic three card um, draw, or mm -hmm. what's the term? Draw is not the term, right? Uh, spread. Spread or draw. Okay. Mm -hmm. Spread. Okay. So you have three cards. And the premise then is that um, the first card on your left will indicate the past, the card in the middle will represent the present. And the card on the right will represent the future through just a basic knowledge of like symbolism of threes and three being in terms of a sequence and in terms of time, like setting up something where um, that which comes first is like the past, the present is what is there in the middle in front of you, and the future is is that which is sort of like on the horizon. Is that more or less correct? Yeah, that's good. And I think, you know, and you can extend that to any model of three. You know, the, the most obvious one is to like say the center card is the situation and the left one instead of the past might be the cause. And the, you know, and the right one instead of the future, yes, might be the outcome. History, problem, advice. Exactly. That could be. It could be uh you could also do like um you could put your goal in the middle and you could put something that helps you on one side and something that is an obstacle on the other side. Uh, you could do um, one that I quite like is uh, what I understand, what I don't understand, what I need to know, mm. things like okay. that. You know, so so I really do believe in using, you know, Depending on the situation, when I'm in a reading with someone, I just listen to what they're saying, and very often they will tell you the questions. And you can use exact quotes, you know, from what they're saying to just say, okay, well, let's answer this question and that question and that question and do it in the most direct way possible, rather than saying, you know, you know, I, I have, I was telling you before the show that I have kind of a personal beef with the Celtic cross because I think it's too abstract. I don't think it always answers the question. And I think it's, you know, it gets fuzzy real quick. So that's a more advanced spread where there's like 10 different cards? Yeah. In fact, it's, I don't even know if I would call it the more advanced, but it is the spread that everybody gives in their little white book with their deck. And so you have people, you know, who are, who just, just started with tarot, who are, <laughs> you know, looking at these 10 cards and just bugging out understandably right. you know it's too too much it's too much and i i also believe that you can do a lot with two cards you know self and other for example you know um oh yeah tell me so tell me about that so what are some of the different things or what is yeah. the sim symbolism of like a two card spread instead of this three card one that i should two cards are incredibly useful because you know <laughs> uh probably 60% of readings 
for me at least, are relationship readings in one way or another. So I literally will just draw a card for each person, and that works really well. Um, it tells you something about the dynamics between them. It tells you something about, you know, you can get so much information about what's happening, how compatible they are, whether they're even looking at each other. You know, that's a just a basic level where you can just look at the surface of the card. So um, is the, the first card is you, and the second card is the other person? Always, always start with you. Yeah. Okay. And and yeah, so this yeah. is it sounds like this is going back to numerology and like numerological symbolism because in mm. two it sounds like you're doing looking at like a binary, so and and one representing like self versus mm -hmm. like two when something splits into two, there's um not just one person, but there's two people or there is self and other or or what have mm -hmm. you. Mm-hmm. That's mm -hmm. the awareness of the other and the gaze that gets set up between them. So, but you can also have like, you know, the advantage and the drawback, the strength and the weakness, um, the situation and the conflict. You know, there's uh, something to let go of, something to embrace. I use that all the time. Uh, what nourishes you, what drains you, there's no limit to it. So it's like symbolically, it's just, it's really diving into that notion of two-ness and any times there is two sides to something or something that has a thing and then its opposite um, mm -hmm. could be understood within that context of, of like a binary. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things I do most often using two cards is, you know, if I'm at the point of a decision, um, I will just sort of divide the deck in half and say, okay, this half is if I do it and this half is if I don't. And I'll draw a card from each and see what happens. And I really like that because it still puts the onus of the decision on you. It just gives you information. You still have to decide what you're going to do and why. And you might get a card that looks really scary and still decide to do it. It's um, it's still up to you. Okay. I'm going to write that down because that whole category of the difference between just seeking insight into something or something describing the present versus Using divination to make a decision is really interesting, but yes. first, I <laughs> yes, and it you know it's funny because for for many years I resisted the idea that tarot should have that kind of traction in your real life. I remember my uh, my father in law, who I love, asked me a few years ago, "Yeah, but you don't use it to to make decisions, do you?" And I'm like, "No, no, 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 no." And then I was like, "Wait a second, <laughs> I do all the time, actually." <laughs> sure. Um, so let's before we go into that further, let's drill down more because I think we're we're in something that's really important and probably mm -hmm. very much connected with astrology in terms of that it's going back to at least in the card spread seems to have a fundamental numerological component, which just like intellectually at least provides an access point for me to understanding not just what this is describing or how it's um, it could be like a, a phenomenon in the world. And how you might be able to explain that almost intellectually to somebody who might be skeptical of this, that um, when you're doing a spread, it has to do with the numerological symbolism of what two means or what mm -hmm. two-ness is versus what three-ness is and what types of things come in threes. And that like time, for example, as we we're talking about, was something that comes in threes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that, that seems like an interesting point. And that also might be a connecting point where there is obvious overlap in astrology because we see similar applications of symbolic thinking when it comes to things like the houses. And for example, um, 
there's binaries with the planets, where the planets are sometimes split into binaries of things like benefic and malefic. Yes. And what would it mean when something is to indicate a positive outcome versus what would it look like if something was to indicate a negative outcome? Right. And then we also see that type of thinking sometimes in the houses or in the aspects. For example, the first house representing the self or representing you in the chart mm -hmm. versus the seventh house, which is in opposition to that, representing the other or representing the partner in the chart or yes. what have you. Yes, I really like thinking of those two card spreads as, as oppositions in a way, mm -hmm. mm. oppositional aspects. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe that's something then that does connect it. And, and one of our underlying questions is, in what ways is astrology similar to tarot or other forms of divination and versus how is it different? And maybe that's one of our initial entry points and access points is that they both have to do with symbolic thinking and mm -hmm. the use of things like um, essentially numerology or attributing meaning to numerological uh, sets or sets of numbers, which yes. goes back to like Pythagoreanism and things like that. Yes. I mean, I think meaning is at the heart of it, right? Because um, what we do both in astrology and in tarot is we take these systems which we assume encompass everything in the world, right? And divide it up by number into, well, in the case of tarot, into 78, but also into systems of four, or systems of 12, if you use correspondences. And then in astrology, you know, seven traditional planets or 12 houses or whatever it is, four quadrants. And um, you know, four elements, and and then we, and then and then it's our job to interpret. Then it's our job to figure out where in that vast constellation of meaning that goes with each of those segments, however we divide it up, we can draw information that's relevant to the situation. And that's so interesting because what is more universal than number or than numbers? And I, you know, you always see those um, commentaries about like if we were ever to interact with another civilization from another galaxy or something like that if if human humanity ever ran into extraterrestrial life like how would we communicate and that like i think carl sagan for example in that book contact which is later mm -hmm. made into a movie they try mm -hmm. to say that number would be the universal language that's true throughout the cosmos and that would be a, a means of communicating so in this context, though, there's a, a, a unique spin within the context on, of divination on number because number mm -hmm. doesn't just convey quantity, but also there's like a qualitative component to numbers and the meaning of numbers here. Yes, absolutely. I think that's true, um, which I use a great deal myself in a sort of one to 10 Kabbalistic um, context, which we may not want to get into. <laughs> it's a whole nother wormhole. <laughs> sure. I mean, we can get into that. Um, so, but but the point there is just that two and three might not just be quantities mm -hmm. of having like more or less or having a certain amount in order to measure something and its um number in terms of quantity, but also like two-ness might have some sort of universal meaning or you like archetypal meaning, some mm -hmm. sort of Overarching mm -hmm. um, feeling or like quality, and like threeness might have some universal meaning or universal quality that transcends, um, you know, the individual things that it like enumerates. 
That's true. But there's another part of the sort of um, art of interpretation in both astrology and tarot that I think is important, and that's the interpreter themselves. Because I think that, you know, and this is something that actually came up in the movie version of Contact, funny that you should mention that, um, Mm. that you, that uh, communication can only use, interpretation can only use what is inside the interpreter, right? So, you know, when Jodie Foster goes to visit the alien culture, whatever it is, it comes as her father, right? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I think that that's that's true for us as interpreters as well. You know, um, the language that's available to us is only what we know, right? So, so it's like just for those that didn't watch the movie, it was like the alien when she went and visited the aliens, like looked inside her mind and like saw her memories, and then appeared to her to talk to her as like a vision of her father because they said that's what she was familiar with, and that would be the less frightening or like off putting thing for her. And so that's that's part of your point. It's just like it, what the that is can appear different to different people based on what their their context is or something like that. Right. And this is where correspondences come in. This is where the the archetypes come in. This is where, you know, what we get in interpretation is the quality of the moment. It's not a specific example. You know, it's not like you get the tower. It's always going to mean a car crash or you know. Uh, a Mars square or whatever, it's not always going to mean that. It's going to mean something that has that quality. And, you know, I think part of what our job is as diviners is to um, be open to the entire uh, spectrum of what that quality of that moment might be, and then to be able to translate that into something that's useful for the context. And one of the things that uh, I think... Jeffrey Cornelius said in your talk with him is that the danger of viewing uh, divinatory praxis as causal in some way is that you lose the context. You lose the idea that it has to apply to the situation at hand and you know that the meaning arises out of the relationship between the querent and the oracle and the need to solve the situation rather than meaning standing outside of it, like a cookbook that you can just look it up and you'll say, okay, well, you know, you drew the tower. <laughs> You'd better just, you know, um, get your get your brakes checked or something, you know? Right. Maybe, so part of it then, and part of what you're saying is it goes back to one of the issues with forms of divination and using symbolism is that they deal in and they speak through archetypes and they are archetypal, as Richard Tarnas likes to say in Cosmos and Psyche, he likes to say that they are that astrology is archetypally predictive, and mm-hmm. that when you when you're dealing with these things, you're not dealing with um, a direct correspondence. You're dealing with something that is trans, like, well, maybe I have to go there in terms of archetypes being transcendent, but just um, maybe could you define like how do you define what an archetype is? Oh God. Chris, that's mean. <laughs> Put it, putting me on the, yeah, actually, I've done this before, and then it turns into this fifteen-minute thing each time I've yeah, done that. I, where we, yeah, I, I don't know if I feel comfortable doing that, but what I can tell you here, let me, let me instead I, of I trying to define if, archetype, if you, if you want, I could, we can just use like the classical, like Plato example of like a tree or something like that for those that aren't fine. familiar. We can do that, but I do want to illustrate what I'm talking about when you're done okay. talking to Plato. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I just one of the things you were saying was just reminding me of the concept of an, an archetype, and just maybe for 
somebody that hasn't been exposed to that concept yet, since we're mm-hmm. sort, of, sort of building things up from square one, just mm-hmm. the idea that there can be the idea of something that is like an umbrella idea that covers all of the multiple variations of that idea and can represent it symbolically. So there might be the archetype of a tree, um, which is some transcendent type or transcendent mm-hmm. idea of a tree, but then there's like thousands of different variations of like a pine tree, a palm tree, a Christmas tree, uh, so on and so forth. Um, but that there can still be this like overarching umbrella concept, which is what we consider or refer to as like an archetype. Yes, yes. So um so so that's you know there there there's an assumption that there's some overarching feeling that you can get to some overarching shape that we call an archetype but but the way that it can manifest is so wildly various and so specific and i think um one way of looking at it like if you are interpreting a tarot card there are many many levels that you can interpret it on. And sometimes all of them are in effect. And the the model I like to use to think about what interpreting a tarot card is like, um, I tend to use uh, scriptural exegesis. So, you know, so there's the concept of, uh, in Christian esotericism of Lectio Divina, where you kind of like start at the uh, most... Uh, most surface level, you read and then you meditate it and then you pray upon it and then you contemplate it until you have this relationship between you and God. There's something similar in uh, in in uh, Judaism called um, pardes, which is uh, peshat remis derish sod, where you go from kind of the simple interpretation to the one that's hinted to, uh, to the one that's like the midrashic comparative interpretation, and then finally, again, the secret one that's known only to you and God. There's something similar with the Quran. There's something similar with allegorical reading in the Middle Ages. But, I, you know, that's the way I go about looking at a tarot card, you know. So, for example, this is the infamous Five of Pentacles. So, um, which might be fun to have on screen, actually, if you want to pull that up. Yeah, let me see if I can find the. Here it is. D O five. So for the video viewers, is, does this look like the right one? Mm-hmm. Okay, That's so here's it. the, so. the five, of Penta- <laughs> five of Pentacles from the Rider Waite Smith tarot deck. Yes, the relentlessly cheerful Five of Pentacles. So, um, <laughs> so at the at the most surface level, you know, I have seen this card mean snow, right? And, and it what is, is it? For those it, just listening to the audio, like what are we looking at, or what does it? We are looking at right. So we're looking at a uh, a scene outside a church, what appears to be a church with a stained glass window with five uh, pentacle shapes on it, and in front of it are two mendicants. I guess that's how Waite describes them. Um, one of them, one of whom is crippled. They're walking on crutches. They're ragged. They're poor, uh, and they're walking through the snow. And it's probably snowing. You could say that's a texture on the church, but it's probably snowing. And it is, in fact, the only card in the Rider Waite Smith deck that has snow on it. Interestingly mm. enough, okay. So, um, so yeah. So I've actually seen this mean snow. You know, um, <laughs> I've seen it more literally, meaning a loss, a financial loss. Also, um, so you can kind of like, see that. 
Yeah, it's like the two figures look like beleaguered, and one of them's on crutches, and the other one is like cov- covered in somewhat like tattered clothes, and they're they're with kind bare of, feet in the snow, right? right? So these are these are clearly people who are in some some form of need. Um, I've seen it mean uh, being locked out, you know. So why aren't they inside the church? Why are they outside of it? So. They might be locked out, or uh, it could be that they haven't thought to knock. Um, mm. And then that's sort of like the first level. But then beyond that, you know, what does that really mean in um, in real life? Well, I've had that mean uh, car maintenance, car problems, things going wrong with uh, technical things. Um, I've had it uh, as losing losing my wallet, you know, for example. I've had it as listening to podcasts about prisoners, um, which you can kind of see as well. Uh, I've seen it represent the family separation policy. I've seen it represent uh, the lockdown as we began the lockdown. Um, I've seen it. um, And then interestingly, you know, some of the some of the uh, correspondences that go with it. That's uh, that's the Taurus One Deccan, which is ruled in the Chaldean system by Mercury. Yeah. So, so, and it's uh, the what the Deccan commentators said about it was that it was a face of sowing and plowing, um, of planting seeds, of geometry, those kinds of things. So I can't remember whether that's from Picatrix or Agrippa or what, but. In tarot, we call it the Lord of Worry. So to me, there's a connection between those concepts. The idea that you have to think about, you have to plan ahead, you have to anticipate, you have to worry about what could possibly go wrong um, in a somewhat mercurial way, <laughs> organized and you know, and measuring out the land where you're going to plant the seeds in order to um, achieve success later, which is the six of... Uh, pentacles, which is known as success. And, you know, and to me, there's something really beautiful about the idea that um, that card, which is not just that card, which looks so dark and so difficult, is also about the cares that you take, the painstaking care you take to make sure that things go well. So it's not just about injury and poverty, misery and necessity. It's it's about what you are willing to do for the things that you love. In this case, maybe growing a crop or uh, something like that. And another thing that's really interesting about it um, is that I think it is a reminder that we all deal with uncertainty at some level, right? You know, and that, um, and that, no matter what, uh, we still have to go on. And so I call this card sacred doubt because it's part of our nature not to know what's going to happen. And yet we have to stand up and face it anyway. Now, one thing that's happened in more recent years for me is that um, this card has come up in ways I couldn't quite understand. And and this is sort of like that base level of meaning where you don't understand at first why it's showing up this way, but this is the advantage of uh, obsessively tracking your results, which is that it's come up as ceremonial magic and ritual for me. 
And at first, I had no idea why that might be. But over the years, there's something about, you know, the amount of there's, there's a nexus of meaning here that has to do with the planning, first of all, which is a huge part of ceremonial magic, you know, the planning and worry and sort of like laying out the groundwork, like we were talking about with the deck and commentaries, but also about that um, relationship with doubt, right? With sacred doubt, with the magical act as a way of counteracting doubt. And because in some ways you can say worry, which is again, the hermetic title of this card, is the opposite of meaning making. It's the opposite of what you're trying to do in a magical act. So, you know, so there's something about that card. <laughs> and the other, the other reason why it has to do with ceremonial magic is if you take those two, um, the, the, those two major arcana that are associated with it. So we said that it relates to Mercury and Taurus one, right? So Mercury is represented in tarot by the magician, and Taurus is represented by the hierophant. So if you take those kind of two um, images of the magician and the hierophant, you get something that looks very much like ceremonial magic. Okay. So, you know, but it just took me a long time to figure out why it was coming up that way. And, you know, tarot's like that. It's, e it's economical. It just sort of telegraphs what it wants you to get out of it, and eventually you figure out why. Okay. So I'm hearing a lot of things here, and I thought that I think that was a really great, like, um, example and demonstration of how one approaches tarot and the process of trying to understand the symbolism where there is maybe some underlying like numerological or number symbolism there, but also you're a big part of what you're doing is you're interpreting the symbolism of the image and even slight minor details or seemingly minor details if you were to just glance at the image. Mm -hmm. um, are actually meant to evoke much deeper feelings and meanings that are can sometimes be crucially important in understanding, again, like the overarching archetype of the image, that there's some sort of archetype there, but the way that that can manifest, just like the tree analogy, can be very multivalent. It can manifest in thousands Absolutely. of different ways. And sometimes many different ways simultaneously. So, you know, and in the context of a reading, you meet the client where they're at, right? I'm not going to tell every client I get to go do ceremonial magic because they got the five of pentacles. I might tell them to, you know, uh, to to make sure they have their keys next time they walk out the door so they're not locked out. But, you know, you kind of, um, you kind of look at the situation and what the, what the client needs and you feel your way towards what's useful. Right. Well, then, and then also mm -hmm. you would take that, and and that has to manifest itself within the context of the constraints that you put on it. Which is, in this instance with tarot, what spread are you doing, and what is the question, or what is the mm -hmm. the person approaching, trying to find out about? So maybe we could do like a hypothetical one of like a three card spread right now. Sure, sure, we can do and, that. And like how you would then interpret that. Um, Let's just say hypothetically, or or within this context. Mm -hmm. Sure. What would you like to read about? Um, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I needed. I didn't have a question in mind, and I'm now suddenly nervous about what to ask or what it might show. But we let's can just come say, back to it if you like. 
Sure. Should I? Because I, I need a question specifically in order well, to. Well, this is what I tell people. You know, um, specific questions get specific answers. Got it. Whereas non-specific questions aren't necessarily going to tell you much. Right. I mean, and the thing is that I I do believe that there are readers who are maybe a little bit more mediumistic than I am who don't need a question to start with. But in mm. general, I find that people get the best results if there's a question. That makes sense. Um, I guess I was just thinking in terms of if there was a past, present, future thing, you would then maybe in the last card you were talking about, if that fell in the first place, then you would say that is what you're coming from and that is the past, uh, maybe somewhat like beleaguered past that you're approaching the present from or that is representing some events that happened in the past versus if it was in the middle place, it would represent where they are at now versus if it was in the third place, it would represent where they're headed in the future. Right. And that does raise, you know, the issue of what do you do when you get a card like that in the future, right? You know, one that looks, at least on the surface of things, pretty dark. So there's a couple of answers to that question. You know, first of all, you draw on everything you know about that card, about because I believe that every card has a range of interpretation that is nothing is so dark that you know, there isn't something you can find in it. Even the Ten of Swords, which is the guy lying on his back, on his on his front with ten swords in his back. You know, there is even that card has something to recommend it. So, you know, so you're using everything you have to find what the message is that's helpful or positive. But also, the way I read, I tend not to I try very hard not to telegraph that things are written in stone. I try to make it clear that there are things you can change and things you can't change and that we can use tarot to get at them. So I never like, you know, because the the, the, the tendency uh, in a tarot reading, and it sometimes comes from the reader and sometimes from the client, is to kind of give up that sense of agency and say, well, this is just going to happen. And I don't really want to, I either want to know or I don't want to know, but there's nothing I can do about it. And I will literally use the cards and say, okay, this card represents what you can do about it, right? And this card represents what you can't change. So there's okay. always some way that you can leave uh, your the person you're reading for on a sort of empowering note. Okay. Um, of course, there are some cards that basically say, <laughs> even if you use them in the what you can do about it uh, scenario, sometimes they say, well, you can't do anything about it. <laughs> yeah, isn't one of the classic things that I guess like the like the death card, for example, is not actually the worst or most problematic card? Is that true or is that? Oh no, no, no. Yeah, okay. there's the uh, <laughs> there's the uh, no, no. The, people classically read death as you know transformation or change or whatever. Have you ever mm. seen that that Simpsons skit? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of personally. Yeah, actually. yeah, I did a, uh, I did a. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember some years back there was a a meme going around where people would take uh, the hit the movie about Hitler called Downfall, and they mm. would like re retitle it. Right. So I did a whole thing on that on the Happy Squirrel, which is the basis of that Simpsons skit uh where lisa gets a happy squirrel and the fortune teller's like oh no anyway right. i got i did a i did a whole thing on hitler gets the happy squirrel and that was great for an afternoon <laughs> like that i'll send it to you later <laughs> um so let me see i wanted to recenter this about where we're at now which is just like we've started to understand how 
so one of the things is that for you, and it seems like a lot of your work has been focused mm -hmm. on, especially with, the, with these last two books that you've published um, on tarot, you seem to be very much focused on getting to and understanding the core meanings of the cards by understanding the overlapping symbolism that's coming from different places. And sometimes that's numerological, and other times there's astrological symbolism that's brought in from the Deccans, and maybe we can introduce that in a second and, and what those correlations are. But basically, you're, you're really focused on, on narrowing in on and, and defining and articulating all of the different ways that the symbolism is coming into play from different angles. Yes, that's interesting that you uh, use the phrase narrowing in on. From my point of view, it's expanding as much as possible um, to to sort of try and figure out how you reconcile these kind of conflicting uh, systems. And it's something that, you know, I think Austin does beautifully in 36 Secrets, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, 36 Faces, sorry, Austin, where, you know, you, you're dealing with Deccan images and significations that are wildly various and trying to reconcile them. And, you know, and that's what I do too. I, I really try to figure out if there's some common theme that is, uh, that you can get to despite or within or through all of these different conflicting prismatic kaleidoscopic images that all have to do with this one card. Right. Like I'm trying to think of an example. So I've got your book, Tarot Correspondences, Ancient Secrets for Everyday Readers. And it looks like one of them, you have like the hanged man, for example, and you say that that's associated with, because um, it's like a table, the Roman numeral 12, the Arabic mm -hmm. number 12, zodiacal glyph, um, downward pointed triangle, which is Water. I can't remember water element. Okay. Mm -hmm. Elemental water. Mm -hmm. um, the animal, you say the eagle, snake, scorpion, fish, water, fowl, dolphin, plant, lotus, ash, all water, plants, willow, comfrey, um, and then different perfumes and incense and so on and so forth. So there's like multiple different symbolic connections between each card that you can look to in order to understand the meaning underlying each card. Yes, and that card in particular is very interesting because in the years since I wrote Tarot Correspondences, I've done this sort of like uh, whole mapping of four elemental stories onto tarot, and the hanged man himself represents the story of water to me. Uh, so, you know, I think of stories of water as having to do with um, sacrifice and surrender. And, you know, I often use the archetype of Odin to uh, hanging on the tree upside down for nine days and nine nights uh, in order to get the secrets of, uh, of, of Mimir at the well. So uh, the, the secrets of the runes, actually. I'm conflating two different myths. But anyway, so, you know, I mean, and there's something in there that you can then break down into the three zodiacal majors of water, you know, uh, Cancer, the chariot, um, Scorpio, the death card, Pisces, the moon. And you can kind of look at that as uh, the chariot representing the quest part of that story of sacrifice and surrender, uh, the Scorpio or death card as representing the transaction of sacrifice, and the Pisces or moon card as representing the altered consciousness that you get on the other side of that deal. So, um, but yeah, that the hanged man's one of my favorites. Okay. For that reason, yeah. Um and so in terms of correspondences, one of the correspondences that you focused on a lot in your past book, and this is where the some of the direct technical overlap with astrology comes in, 
is that um, there's a system of using the traditional 36 decans and the planetary rulers for those decans that have been used for the past like 1500 or, or 2000 years and mm-hmm. assigning them to certain specific tarot cards. Exactly, exactly. And it's a it's a weird thing because the, you know, the astrological overlaps in tarot are idiosyncratic, right? Because we have decans, but we don't really have anybody dealing with, uh, um, you know, uh, bounds or, you know, or triplicities, really. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's a weird system of, um, of assignments, and it's obviously number-driven, right? Because they, the Golden Dawn recognized, okay, we have these uh, the system of thirty six. How can we, how can we superimpose it on on the cards in some way? Let's talk about that actually, because I meant mm-hmm. to expand on both the history and origins of the Rider Waite deck, but also the the history of the Golden Dawn. So, what mm-hmm. was the Golden Dawn group, and what was the time frame on that? Remarkably short, actually. We're talking about the very beginning, the, the very beginning years of the twentieth century, and. You know, uh, they actually didn't really hold together for for more than a few years. But one of the offshoots of that secret society, which was an in, it was basically an English initiatic society, um, where they uh, decided to explore many different occult avenues, esoteric avenues. Um, you know, astrology, Kabbalah, I Ching all sorts of different things in their own way. And uh, and so it was Arthur Edward Waite and Pamela Coleman-Smith who came out with the Rider-Waite-Smith deck at the end of 1909, I think it was. And um, it was really Pamela Coleman-Smith's work that was informed by Arthur Edward Waite. Um, he didn't even give her much guidance as far as the minors are concerned, but she was... Uh, she was phenomenally gifted and quite psychic as well. So, uh, so although there is no reason to believe that she had full access to all of the Golden Dawn's correspondences that we talk about, they're in there. They're nevertheless in there, and you can see them. Okay. So, and the tarot itself, you wrote in your book, in the latest book, um, Thirty Six Secrets, that. Tarot goes back to like the 15th century. It's actually a relatively recent form of divination in like the big long-term span of things, which goes mm-hmm. back over thousands of years, back to like 2000, 3000 BCE, where mm-hmm. there were other forms of divination like watching birds or um entrails. We all love entrails. <laughs> yeah, that's that's everyone's favorite, looking at like the liver of a sacrificed animal and that Harry's sort of the- busy. Yes. Right. Some of the <laughs> things that were unique about that could indicate different things and many other different forms of divination after that. But so tarot shows up around the 15th century. But you said something in the book in passing that I was curious about, which is that as we use it today, it actually, the current form only goes back to like the eight, mid 18th century or something like that. Oh, the correspondences, you mean? Oh, is that or, what it was? Okay. Yeah. It's the cor- well, the correspondences only go back to about the mid-18th century in the sense that's when um, Jean-Baptiste Elliot, otherwise known as Etea, started sort of you know, putting together Kabbalah, astrology, and uh, numerology and superimposing it on it. Uh, superimposing it on tarot. But, but in fact, the modern tarot um, 
that we use, particularly in English-speaking countries, is is all based on Rider Waite Smith, and is all based on you know this this twentieth century construction. Now, Tarot de Marseille goes back further, and that's something you see a great deal more in the continental tradition. So you know you will see fifteenth uh, sorry sixteenth century decks. 16th century or 17th century decks that still look very much like a Marseille deck you could buy today. But um, but the tradition that we see here in English-speaking countries is, you know, and the, and the explosion of tarot decks that we have enjoyed for the last few decades is all based on Rider-Waite-Smith and Thoth, basically, Golden Dawn-based decks. So I have I got a gift years ago, which was a Tarochi deck from another astrologer and friend Laura Machete. And this is from like the 15th century and shows like different cards. Oh yeah, um, that's a Visconti Sforza, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. this is goes back. So is this was it used in that context for divination or what was the original purpose? Gaming. Just it games. was a game. Okay. Yeah. Well, hmm. I mean, there's some <laughs> uh, there's 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 some speculation that, for example, the Solabuska deck, which was um, not exactly a tarot deck, had some kind of you know um, deeply buried and interesting um, sorceress use. But the Visconti Sforza was this project of a noble family, northern Italian family, late 1400s, and you know, and it was. Um, Really, a a flex, I think, on their part to some extent, because it's like you know we have the ability, we have the resources to create this beautiful set of images with our faces on them, um, mm. and then um, to construct a deck that can be used in a trump-taking game. So you know, and I think you know people sometimes say tarot is just is only is less significant because it grew out of a gaming tradition. But actually, you know, to tie it back to the larger theme of divination, I really believe that divination um, demands a game's mindset at some level. Mm. Um, the idea, and this is again something that that Jung subscribed to, is that it's it's fundamentally hermetic. It is, you know, it is it is a it is a device of Mercury and you know, who himself was a trickster and a games player. So, you know, you what you do is you engage in divination as if it's a game, as if it's a play, or, but earnestly. So you enter into it with all earnestness and sincerity, and then you accept whatever happens. Because I believe that one of my, you know, one of my great tenets of divination is that it's about not being afraid. Divination is about not being afraid. So, you know, in the same um mindset that you might enter a game in a spirit of play it's beneficial to do so with divination as well okay um and so so it's connected it goes back to and you're talking about gaming because it's not unlike in the terms of its origins like a standard set of cards for like poker or something like that, that well the they're same- related they are they okay. are related yeah i mean i think you know i mean the differences are um are really in the majors, you know. I mean, it's like the on, the main differences are that instead of those suits that you, the four suits that we typically talk of, um, wands, sorry, uh, spades and 
and clubs and hearts and diamonds, you know, those are cognate with the tarot suits. Spades literally means swords. You know, for mm. example, um, cups are hearts, and then there's some dispute about wands and diamonds, but uh, sorry, diamonds and um, clubs, uh, which actually extends into the esoteric correspondences as well. But um, but the main difference, of course, is that in tarot, you have a set of uh, 22 major arcana, which is completely lacking in a playing card deck. And also the other thing is that instead of um, king, queen, knight, page, you have king, queen, jack in a playing card deck. So they dropped the knight. Okay. So yeah. Um, but, but they, they all come from the same place. They come from the same place, and part of what you're saying is that it goes back to that notion of a game, and and part of maybe the connection there, and what's important is that with games, there you initially have to start off with a random or chance uh, component and a random or chance allotment, and then maybe that mm -hmm. that idea of like allotment is key because that was a super important term in the ancient world when it had to do with fate, because mm -hmm. one's fate was an allotment. Um, based on chance and and based on you know um, fortune or or what have you, but that the allotment was meaningful instead of just random or senseless, but but purposeful in some way or intentional in some way on the part of some broader concepts of like fate or the gods or the yes. cosmos or what have you. Yes, yes, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All right, so it's going back to that, but then tarot branches off and. Um, starts getting this other um, thing with image um, interpretations and images that were attributed meaning, and also other correspondences based on on astrology and other occult things. And then eventually, as you were saying, by 1909 or 1910, there's the creation of this new tarot deck, which is the Rider Waite Smith deck, and that became basically the core archetype of like all other decks. All other tarot decks since that time, for the most yes, part. Yes, particularly because the minor cards, uh, the scenic minors, is what we call them. The idea that there's little scenes playing out on each minor card, rather than just showing you, you know, uh, four wands, it shows you something that's happening that you can project into and onto. And, and I think that accounts for its popularity. Okay, and who were the three figures that were associated again, and what's the history behind, or the like, short Cliff Notes version of the history behind the make, <laughs> making of this deck? Arthur Edward Waite and Pamela Coleman Smith. Um, Pamela Coleman Smith was very much involved in the theater world, uh, the theater scene in England at that time. So there's a lot of kind of Shakespearean and theater imagery embedded in those cards. Um, it was really those two. And then, of course, for those who follow the Thoth deck, uh, Alistair Crowley was briefly a member of the Golden Dawn, but he and Lady Frida Harris devised the um, Thoth deck in the 40s in wartime, although it wasn't actually issued until 1969. Okay, so there's a, another deck, and the Thoth deck was... Sometimes when I hear people talk about that, they have a, they sort of like lower their voice, and there's like a <laughs> sense of it being a little bit more almost like menacing or having a darker energy in some of the symbolism. Is that your take? Is that, is that true? Am I recounting that correctly? Is somebody as an outsider to this? Or so I think that what's going on there is people's feelings about Crowley. Okay. You know, I mean, because he has such a reputation, uh, and and the Thoth deck is. Um, well, 
part of the problem with the Thoth deck is that Lady Frida did not like drawing faces. <laughs> so, mm. you know, so what faces there are in there are sort of menacing and, um, and, and modernist and stylized. But, uh, but it is, it is a deck that is, uh, that does have sort of a vibe about it that I think people find, um, either incredibly attractive and compelling or rather off-putting and sinister. Do you know what the like copyright status is of that? And if I can show an image or should I avoid that for this I think purpose? you can show an image. I think it's fine in the context of fair use. 1940s. Okay. Well, show I'm just the, gonna... like the seven of discs or, or I can show it if you like. I mean, I have- If you've got um, it. So I've just, I've oh, just yeah, pulled up like the Google all... search results. Yes. Um, let me see. I would have to just bring up my Thoth image folder if I can. So they are, <laughs> one moment. Ugh. Thoth. And, and so in both instances, I don't know if that's relevant at all, but it was like uh, some guy and that was into occultism and then mm. they had a, a woman that was the um, actual designer who designed the actual images in both cases. Yes, it seems it seems strange, doesn't it? But uh, but yes, that is that is what happened. Um, I do not have screen sharing. Do you think you can enable? Yeah, let me see. That if I can do me? that. Allow to. Um, okay, make co-host. Let's see if that helps without crashing our recording. Yes, we're good. Okay, there we go. So this is the, for example, the seven of discs, which, you know, it's a little, it's a little darker. It's a little, uh, doesn't really meet you where you live. On the other mm. hand, one thing that, that people who are into the correspondences love about it is that uh, you can see the actual correspondences on it. So um, let's see, I don't think I can you can just barely see it because I've removed the borders, but that's a Saturn glyph at the top and a Taurus glyph at the bottom. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Let me stop that share. Okay. So this okay. was that was a later one though that came about a few decades later, but the Rider Waite Smith deck that was out 1909-1910 became the blueprint for all other decks for the most yes, part. Yes, but that. really, really, the reason is because it was reissued by you know the. The late beloved Stuart Kaplan, who just passed this weekend, um, in 1971, and that, with the Thought Deck being released in 1969, so between the two of them, but especially the writer Wade Smith, that really launched that this sort of um, modern era of tarot, where, along with the sort of um, New Age movement with its roots in the 70s, you know, tarot really took off starting then. Okay. When was it? Was it colorized from the beginning, or was that a separate? Process? Yes, yes, it was. It was color from the beginning. Um, although the original colors were much more muted than the 1971 edition that most people are familiar with, which is very yellow. <laughs> okay, got it. Um, so let me see uh, if I'm trying to think if there's any more history things that are relevant besides that. Today there are. You know, hundreds and thousands of different decks and different people. Your co-host on the podcast, I know, has done one or two different of their own decks mm -hmm. or illustrated their that's own decks. That's right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's What's the that Rosetta. One called again? The Rosetta Tarot was her first deck, and the Tabula Mundi Tarot, which is, um, which she did originally in black and white, and then colored 
the new edition is called the Caloris Arcus uh, Tabula Mundi, and it's it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful, uh, and as well as the Majors edition that she did last year, um, called the Pharos Tarot. Okay, um, and I showed I've got the Tarot Tree deck, and I actually I bought a deck very early on, and it was the one by. Um, I think it's called the Mythic Tarot by Liz Green and Juliet Sherman. Oh yeah, Sherman-Burke. the the original one you have because it was I reissued like ten years like, ago. Is this original? That's or? it. That I have that hanging on my wall of wheel, right to my right. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Yeah. So I. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful deck. Yeah. Because they try to integrate like mythology or mythological story, classical mythology into the symbolism of some of the different ones. So like one of them is the Wheel of Fortune, and it shows like the three. Fates from yes, yes, it shows the Moirai, and in fact, I just placed that on my wall last week so that I would have those three, you know, um, uh, Atropos, Lachesis, and uh, Clotho to look at when I recite the Orphic hymn to the Moirai. So I I look at that every day now. I like that good timing. Um, (laughs) So that's just an example of like another deck and I, I bought that early on because when I got into astrology when I was still in my mid-teens I tried to dive into a bunch of different things and I was getting really into astrology and I bought a tarot deck and I also bought like an, a book on the I Ching and some coins um, but I decided really early on that um, I needed to really focus my energy on one and so I decided to learn astrology and go as far with that as I could. And I didn't actually end up learning tarot, even though I'm very loosely familiar with it, so that it's not mm-hmm. something I specialize in um, much at all. And, and some of this is new to me. Well, you know, I think you've got some really good decks there. The the book for the Mythic Tarot is particularly good. But I think that there's a sort of a more fundamental truth to the to your biography there, which is that you know tarot and astro people tend to overlap quite a bit. You know, I've found that. Everyone dabbles at one point or another with both, and mm. um, and it's. I don't know if you can predict who's going to go one way or who the other, but um, but most people have a passing familiar familiarity with one if they know the other. Sure, yeah. That yeah. sometimes there, sometimes once you maybe part of it is that once you are exposed to one form of divination and you understand the basic like underlying principles, it's not that you can easily that that's immediately transferable but you at least it opens up an understanding of how the world works and like a cosmos where other things like that could be possible and an openness yeah yeah mm-hmm. an openness mm-hmm. so you might be more open mm-hmm. to entertaining different forms of divination and seeing how they work or perhaps um you know getting a reading for from somebody or, or what have you right so that, that brings up a question then um do different forms of divination have different Characters are there different ones that are better or worse for certain types of questions? Or one of the things um, my partner Lisa often comments on is she feels like different forms of divination sometimes have a different character, and sometimes they're embedded in certain philosophical outlooks. Like for example, some of the philosophy underlying the I Ching might, um, you know, give it a certain spin that sometimes may come off as like more moralizing, for example, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's true or how do you feel about that or what does that spark in you in terms of thoughts? Yes. I mean, I think I think that's true. I think that, <laughs> you know, I tend to be more of a lumper than a splitter, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I okay. tend to uh, 
I tend to always see first what things have in common as opposed to what they the ways in which they're different. But but I do think that, you know, hmm, I think that the the moment that you get into the moral framework around a divination system, you're talking about culture and context in a way that is in some ways outside of the process of the subjective process that is truly what divination is about, right? Mm. I mean, I think mm, this is something that I've had to, and I think every reader has to learn to do in the course of a, of their life as a reader, which is you deal with the situation as it comes to you and you try not to pass judgment on it. Um, because the minute that you and all of your ego consciousness and all of your belief systems start to bear on the question, you're getting in the way. So, you know, I mean, there's a, <laughs> it's very hard not to do, but uh, but I've had this conversation with with Rachel Pollack a number of times about, you know, what it's okay to read about, what it's, a, you know, where you should be hands off? Should you spy on third parties? Should you read for health? Things like that. And, and, you know, and because we are trying to be ethical people, we sometimes come up with rules around that. But what Rachel has said to me in the past is, you know, who am I to say what's a good question and what's not? You know, and to me, there's a humility to that and a sort of a willingness to help no matter what that I try to remember, even while, you know, trying to bridge the difference by, you know, making sure that people have talked to their doctor or, you know, or have um, ha hotlines for whatever problem it is that they need. But, uh, but, you know, but I've had people <laughs> ask everything from, you know, um, how can I make sure that uh, my spouse doesn't find out about my infidelity to am I going to get a 93 on the next test that I take for my nursing exam? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and I try to just answer the question as much as possible. Um, right, without imposing that's... your own um, sense of right. like, and morals on, on it. To me, that's that's the fundamental nature of divination is just answering the question. Now, as far as do different systems have different temperaments or characters, right. I do think so to some and, extent. And maybe I should have asked, what forms of divination are you familiar with, or do you either actively practice, or or do you feel like you have enough passing familiarity with? <laughs> so I really am first and foremost a tarot person. I okay. do I do sort of play with other card systems from times I've played with runes, I've played with eching, um, but there's something also that. I think is um, is important to me, which is that I I don't really think, even though I'm so invested in tarot and I live and breathe tarot, I don't really think the system matters that much. I have done divination sitting out in the woods with sticks and stones, and to me, that's a very pure form of the art. Right? You you try and connect with something that is larger with than that is larger than you, and it doesn't matter what the medium is. So philosophically, that's what I believe. Whether okay. I actually, you know, can practice to the same degree of efficacy is a completely different question. Do you think that it's true? So let's just say then in a tarot context that different decks have different character, different tarot decks have different characters, even if there's an underlying commonality in terms of some of the things that they're conveying? 
Yes. Um, well, I think the commonality lies more in the reader than in the cards. Um, but if that makes sense, the um, one thing I notice, for example, if I'm using a Marseille tarot, so that's, you know, um, a little bit like that Visconti Sforza you were using, but a, a typical woodcut deck, um, which has all of the, uh, with has nothing but regular pips. And uh, anyone who is familiar with the tradition will recognize those images. They are um, they are ubiquitous. And I find that when I use Marseille decks, I tend to focus a great deal more on the surface image, you know, whether, whether someone is looking at someone else, uh, whether someone is, oh, wait, I see, yes, I see the fool down there. <laughs> there you go. There's some Marseille. So, yes. Um, and also it, for it focuses me on number as well, um, because the pips are nothing but pips. They show no scenes. So like mm -hmm. you can see a, a, a 10 of wands over there. You tend to think a great deal more about how 10 wands is the maximum. Um, you think about, there's a five of cups there. You think about how the fifth cup is set apart. The uh, the designs around it, the so-called arabesque, that the leaves and foliage that that has meaning. So there are many Marseille readers who say, don't ever bring a correspondence system near my Marseille deck <laughs> mm. because that's uh, insulting. I don't think you can divorce the interpreter from what they know. I, I bring everything to every reading. Um, that said, you know, I think that symbol is a language. And I think that different decks will foreground certain messages through that language. But I also think, and here we get into magic, I also think you can argue back. You know the language, you can argue back. It's a conversation. Okay. Um, that makes sense. So so maybe there, there's a little bit of that. So there's the deck itself and maybe it having a slight character emphasizing different things. And then with mm -hmm. divination, there's also the subjective component. And that's something you've mentioned a few times Mm -hmm. That's really relevant here in terms of um, one of the things I can think of is is like what experiences you've had when you've been experiencing certain things in your life, and maybe you've pulled pulled different cards, and how that gets sort of seared into your memory in terms of what your personal experiences, therefore, in the future you connect that card with. Yes, absolutely, that happens all the time. So, um, well, we talked about the five of pentacles a little bit before and i wanted to mention that you know because of my experiences with technical problems with that card i will often do sympathetic magic with that card so for example uh one thing that i did one day when i got the 5 of pentacles was i didn't want to get locked out of any place i didn't want to have financial problems or card trouble or whatever so i um i did something that needed to be done around the house uh we had a broken lock on our front door a slide bolt and I got my husband's tools and I fixed it, which to me was a way of saying, look, this fulfills the requirements. It has to do with keys and locks and being locked out. It has to do with planning ahead, which we talked about with that card, Mercury um, in Taurus. And it has and worry, <laughs> worry that my door would blow up, blow open or somebody would come in. So so sympathetic magic is a way that I respond to that. Um, another card that uh, that is similar for me is the seven of pentacles, which is sometimes known as the Lord of Failure. And, you know, so 
with that one, I will often kind of build more time into what I have to do. So for example, the the searing experience for me was <laughs> one day when I got the five of pentacles and the seven of pentacles. And at the time I was still mostly a food writer. So I had to, I was going to the James Beard Awards. I'd been a judge for them. And I was supposed to get uh, on a bus that afternoon uh, to go down there. Well, I ended up uh, having trouble parking, missing my bus, having to take an incredibly expensive Amtrak ride down there instead, and arriving late and having to change into, you know, my black tie stuff on the on the train. And I was going to stay at somebody's house where they had mailed the key to a FedEx office uh, that closed at 11 45, and I just barely made it there. I nearly got locked out and on the street. So, you know, <laughs> since that happened, I've been very conscious of um, of the potential of both those cards to cause technical troubles. And if I ever get that combination again, which I may, there are 3,003 two-card combinations. I'm through about 60% of them now. Um, I'll know what to do. But uh, <laughs> the other thing that I will often do is, you know, having had a number of stressful iterations of the tower card, I will do sympathetic magic for that, too. I have literally crawled downstairs headfirst <laughs> uh, to, to, uh, to draw off the charge of that card. And um, when I get the Ten of Swords, famously, I will go to the store and buy 10 sewing needles, you know, and then I will sit in the parking lot and say the requirements have been fulfilled. Okay. I, I like that. So so part of this, and you mentioned this, I think, in both of your books, which is that you feel like um, the tarot pieces and learning about the future, learning about what's manifesting now or coming up in the future is one piece of it, but that the other side of that coin for you is um, magic or sympathetic magic being connected with that. And it almost sounds like mm -hmm. one of the implicit things that you're saying there, taking for granted, is that the symbolism has to manifest in some way. So why not yes. just to be more deliberate about taking that into your hands and um, bringing it to fulfillment actively and deliberately by doing something that actually fulfills and fits that symbolism, and Precisely. that that will sort of like uh, capture or like soak up the symbolism in your life like a sponge. But it's also one to, way to do it. Yeah, to direct it. Okay. One way to manifest or express it, and you know, because that's what we do in magical ritual, right? We put a. a um, conglomerations of symbol together with words and intention and say, this is what this means now and what I'd like to bring down. So, you know, so I believe that it seems intellectually coherent to me that we should be able to master this language and not only find out information, which is what divination does, but also change what's going on in the conditions around us. Okay. So not just, it's not just about Finding out the future, but also possibly um, once you have that information and that power, that you might have the power to alter or even to change the future. Oh, absolutely! And in fact, one of my favorite things to do with a tarot deck is to say, "Okay, so you know, suppose that I am in a position where I feel really stuck. Like the Eight of Swords is a is a is a card that might represent that. It shows a woman who's all bound up. She's got swords around her." And say I want to get out of that situation and be free to do whatever it is that I want. 
which I might represent with the star, for example, which is a famous um, archetype of freedom. So what I might do is I might shuffle the deck and then I would look, I would actually literally turn it over and look for those two cards inside the deck. And then once I'd found them, I would take all of the cards that fell between the Eight of Swords and the Star. Could be two cards, could be 74, you know, um, and I will, from that pile, I will draw, you know, I will make a bridge from the Eight of Swords to the Star. So I might draw three cards or five cards or two cards or whatever it is I can handle. And that will become a kind of a working of sorts for getting from point A to point B. Okay, that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. So that makes me think back to like in early Mesopotamia, they had what were called Nam Namburbi rituals or like propitiation rituals that they would do sometimes when there was a negative indication or a negative omen indicated by the divination. And um, it was what was called an apotropaic ritual. Yes. Which, so yes. for example, one of the most famous ones was the substitute king ritual, where if there was like a bad mm -hmm. eclipse that indicated negative things for the king or for the kingdom, they might substitute and take some like peasant or some farmer and like make him king for a week. And mm -hmm. he would be the one that would be the king during the period that looked inauspicious or like when something negative would happen for the king. And then after that was over, they would make him not the king. And then that In the be best the case, the, he would probably get his head chopped off. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, uh, there's a sort of dark side to that in terms of that. But there was <laughs> at least there was that, or more recently in like more modern times, I've heard about, for example, in like in India, and I'm not sure if I'm recalling this correctly, but the notion of like if you had a negative indication for marriage through divination or astrology, like marrying a tree or something initially as your first marriage in order to like ward off or um, fulfill that in some way that symbolism and then that way it would clear the way for having other like fulfilling relationships later or something like that those are brilliant examples I mean I think yeah I think sympathetic and apotropaic magics are you know something that we see um, universally for that very reason yeah okay in conjunction so with divination yeah. That may be something that's tied in with divination going back very far and maybe like an important then thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. So I was reading this book, rereading reading this book last night that's really good. It's like a translation of a book by a Mesopotamian scholar um, named Stefan Maul, and it's titled The Art of Divination in the Ancient Near East, Reading the Signs of Heaven and Earth. And it was talking about some of those things and the different forms of divination. And one of the things that he really focused on was um, just the notion that divination was kind of like a technology for attempting to gain foreknowledge about the future. And um, there were all these discussions about like foreknowledge, uh, mm -hmm. being forewarned about something, and the idea that perhaps you could erase the boundary between present and future. And that that was what was at the core of divination fundamentally in the ancient world, as well as the idea eventually, once that had developed, that knowledge of the future was something that was both desirable and potentially advantageous. Because if you could know the future, you might be able to do something different in order to, to alter it in some way. Yes, I think that that's really interesting. And it does kind of get 
back to that sort of intersection of, you know, eternal order and linear time, the idea that maybe by accessing that 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 um, that nexus that we have some way of getting beyond um, the normal limits on our perception of past and future. And I think also there's something that Jeffrey Cornelius said in your interview with him about uh, symbol not being defined by time. And I think that's something that many of us have experienced that, you know, when we're receiving oracular information, whether it's through dream or through one of these praxes, uh, it's, it doesn't always it doesn't always respect the boundaries of time. You might hear something that you didn't know about the past, and you might very well uh, hear something that you didn't know about the future. In fact, I get all kinds of sort of really pointless information about the future in my dreams. Like I, I record dreams almost every night, and and you know it's like stupid stuff. Like I like um, I remember one night I uh, I dreamed that I was in a hotel and I was packing up and Dolly was, Salvador Dolly was in the next room. And then the very next day I saw, you know, a program on Dolly and I had no idea that was coming. So it's not necessarily that it's all that advantageous all the time, but it's just a demonstration that this stuff is more porous than we think. Yeah. That, um, there's some that divination has access to a world or a layer of reality that is not constrained by time and where the boundaries mm-hmm. or between space. or space, yeah. right? And some of those boundaries are um, erased or in some weird way. Mm-hmm. So that kind of takes us back to astrology then, and where astrology fits into all of this, which is that in ancient Mesopotamia, about four thousand years ago. There were a bunch of other systems of divination that developed first, including like what you just mentioned, like divination from dreams, uh, but also um, reading the flight, the flocks or patterns in birds, or mm-hmm. um, other different forms of divination like that. Studying entrails or like livers and other things, and then eventually, at some point, um, they started paying attention to celestial omens like comets or eclipses. And um, celestial divination became one of the forms of divination as well, because um, some of those things can be like random or chance-like phenomenon that the human doesn't have any control over, but mm-hmm. will just you know happen. And suddenly there is a unique appearance of something that speaks, and the notion of natural phenomenon that are random or chance-like speaking to you. About something that's happening in the present, or giving an indication, or a sign, or an omen about the future, um, was a natural extension from the other forms of divination. Yes, yes, and there's also that wonderful um, what is it called, Cladon, I think. You know, the uh, divination by crowds, where you just walk into the street and the first thing you hear uh, is is what pertains to your situation. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned earlier um, bibliomancy, which is divination by books, where you mm-hmm. pick a book randomly and you open up, open it up to a random page, and then there's something about the page that you fall on that may be significant mm-hmm. in that moment for some mm-hmm. reason. Yes. 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 Are there any other like interesting or weird forms of divination that you can think of off the top of your head that we're forgetting to mention? <laughs> Probably. I'm sure there are. Oh, here comes my cat. Iluromancy. Okay. <laughs> um, there we go. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I think that 
I really love the idea that you can divine using nearly anything, you know, um, because I don't think that divination is an elevated art. I think it's just, you know, using the tools you have at hand. And if you have no tools, you just look out your window. Okay. So, so anything that can have like a natural phenomenon that has a random or chance-like allotment or characteristic to it, you can use for divination. Mm-hmm. And so initially, like celestial omens started being one of those things, and it was a late form of divination that developed. But eventually, um, it seems like it started becoming more and more important in Mesopotamia, and they started collecting um, these little clay tablets where they would write down celestial omens and what they meant, or celestial omens that had occurred in the past and what that had coincided with, like Mm -hmm. the eclipse in one part of the sky and the death of a king, or let's say an eclipse in a different area and a famine occurred or something like that. Mm -hmm. And they started building up um, libraries of these observations of celestial movements and their correlations on Earth. Um, And then something happened eventually, which is that that form of divination started getting elevated more and more in Mesopotamia. And this author that I was reading last night, part of his argument was that that happened partially because astrology wasn't as localized as some of the other forms of divination mm. that were only occurring within the field of view of, you know, a small field of view of the person observing it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, let's say, casting cards, and it's just like you and whoever else is in the room can see that. But with astrology, sometimes it was like an eclipse, and the entire city is watching, yeah, written the across moon. the sky for all to see. Yeah, right. So it was something mm-hmm. that might have been applying more broadly to like the city or the state as a whole, or the world in general in some way. So that it, astrology started getting this more elevated position, and it also one of the things that becomes tricky about astrology that might throw. An issue in there is that as the Mesopotamians studied it more and more and started putting more um, towards studying the movements of the planets and the stars, they realized that the movements of the planets were cyclical and predetermined, and that through the development of mathematical astronomy, you could actually create like an ephemeris where you could mm-hmm. predict where the planets would be in the future and where they would be in the past. And eventually, we get the development of things like natal astrology, which is the notion that you um, look at the alignment of the cosmos at the moment a person is born, and it will tell you something about the future of that person's life, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, So two things. One, it starts bringing up an issue with astrology that makes it unique, to me at least, compared to other forms of divination, which is that the alignment of the planets is predetermined and is already determined in some way before you look at it. Whereas mm-hmm. with tarot, you have right. to shuffle the deck of cards and then pull the cards out, and it almost—it's not predetermined or doesn't really exist necessarily in that until that moment. Exactly, with the exception of horary, in a sense, uh, in the sense that with horary, you're dealing with the understanding of the interpreter in a way that's much more subjective. Yeah, that's a good point. So, and horary was Jeffrey Cornelius's access point because there was a revival of horary in the 1980s, where horary wasn't very really practiced very much. But then some astrologers in the UK got really interested in it and revived it through um, reprinting William Lilly's classic text from the 17th century Christian astrology, which was primarily on horary. And mm-hmm. Jeffrey Cornelius said, 
that horary, which is when you um, like a client approaches an astrologer and the astrologer casts a chart for the moment that the client asks an important question and then can try to answer the question by looking at the chart, mm -hmm. um, which is very similar to tarot in that you're casting something for that moment and then the random or chance-like characteristic of that is seen to be purposeful instead of just random and meaningless. Um, right. Jeffrey Cornelius argued that horary was actually, it should not be set aside and should not be treated as different, but in fact, horary was pointing to something that was true for astrology in general, which mm -hmm. is that all astrology was divination and it's not just um, horary that is divinatory. Yes. Well, the interesting thing about astrology, I think, is if you if you take a step back, you know, we talked earlier about the necessity of chance and chaos and randomness, you know, in acts of divination. And mm. one thing that I think we get away from sometimes is the idea is that astrology is based on looking at the sky that's just a field of stars. There are no, you know, the constellations are an artifact. They're an imposition. They're a projection. And that projection, I think, is analogous to what we do in finding patterns in tarot or in other divination systems where we impose meaning or, well, we, we co-create meaning, let's say, with the substrate of whatever it is that we're looking at. Yeah, that's a really good point. So mm -hmm. we do a similar process. So this was mentioned earlier. Like for example, um, there's benefic planets and there's malefic planets, and that probably mm -hmm. arose out of just an observational distinction where the the two benefic planets, Venus and Jupiter, appear like these two bright white, sort of gleaming, twinkling stars that move through the night sky. If you look up and, and visualize them, whereas Mars and Saturn, Saturn appears more like dark and brown, and Mars mm -hmm. is more like reddish. Mm -hmm. And so, um, early astrologers in Mesopotamia saw that visual distinction, and then it created a sort of binary where they said these are the benefic planets that tend to indicate more positive things, and these are the quote unquote malefic planets that tend to indicate more difficult things. But it was originally just based on that visual component or that symbolic interpretation of interpreting visual symbolism. Yes, and even though you know modern astrologers might just be you know looking at solar fire rather than at the night sky, it's still an imposition of a pattern. It's still a you know producing a framework that um, that encourages meaning to arise. Yeah, definitely. Even if because because now you know two thousand years after those that system was created, it is largely just a symbol set, and it's something people look at on a computer screen, and the meanings are already pre-applied. In mm -hmm. terms of this means this, and so on and so forth. But it is important that if you take it all the way back as far as you can go, often there were symbolic reasons, like that visual distinction I just talked about before, mm -hmm. for where that distinction of benefic and malefic came from originally. Right. Or, or to give another example, that um, the first house and the ascendant, because that's where the sun and the planets rise or emerge from underneath the horizon each day. That that's mm -hmm. the part of the chart that represents the person who was born at that time, which is is you, the mm -hmm. owner of the birth chart. Whereas the seventh house, which is where planets set and sink out of sight and sort of merge with the earth, um, mm -hmm. that that represents the other or partnership or other people in your life, generically speaking. So Precisely. first house is self, and seventh house is other. Mm -hmm. Or um, to extend that further, that. The tenth house in the midheaven represents when the planets and the sun is in 
the middle of the sky and is at its most visible, that symbolically that represents where you will be at your most visible and it represents your career and your public life versus mm-hmm. the place opposite to that, the fourth house in the IC, which is the most hidden part of the chart, just visit visibly where the planets are at their most invisible, that that represents your private life and represents your, therefore your home and your living situation. Right, right. So there's that. We can see very early on that astrologers were deriving many of the rules for astrology from the same sort of visual symbolism that we see showing up in things like tarot. Yes, although I mean, and I think just to take the devil's advocate position, you know, there is something fundamentally different in the fact that you can project forward in such a uh, such a accurate and predictable way, you know, in a way that you obviously can't with sortilege systems. Yeah, and that's the issue that I've had with it, and that's where I depart from Jeffrey Cornelius, and I have objections to seeing astrology only as divination or as mm-hmm. completely one-to-one correspondence as a result of that, because there is something that seems more objective about it that's existing out there um, independently of us paying attention to it and independently of our involvement in it. Um, yes. And that's something I definitely want to talk about, but I it's like the fact that there are overlaps and we can see in terms of this use of symbolism there are some points where yeah it is using symbolic thinking and interpret interpretation and things like that that are relevant and do overlap with with tarot and Very other forms much of divination so. and i think you know maybe it's just a question of emphasis because i think you know um what what cornelius was saying is simply that you know the the specificity of the moment of the reading of the interpreter of the relationship is more important to privilege than it had been getting before. Okay, so there is that predetermined notion to it with the planets, but then there's also something I've thought about a lot over the years, especially over the past few years, about natal astrology and the origins of natal astrology, because natal astrology actually originally developed in Mesopotamia and the oldest birth charts date to 410 BCE. There is actually a random or chance component to natal astrology, which is that you know, no, you don't, for the most part, especially let's say naturally in the fifth century BCE, you don't control when you're born. Neither mm-hmm. the native does. Let's just say all other metaphysical or re- reincarnational other things aside, um, nor like the doctor or the mother, it's just suddenly the mother goes into labor and then mm-hmm. the labor could be long or it could be really short. And then all of a sudden you pop out. And then if there's somebody there who's paying attention, they could note um, what stars or other planets or other celestial objects can be seen at that moment, or they can note what is the random order of the planets at that time. Mm-hmm. And even though the the Positions of the planets are predetermined in the past and the future. What's not predetermined is that moment that you pop out. And that's like the random or chance like characteristic of the moment of birth in natal astrology in some sense. That makes a great deal of sense. I hadn't thought about it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just something I've been thinking about for a number of years as I try to wrestle with Cornelius's argument and the question of astrology as divination and the it's like that underlying thing that it goes back to of the notion of chance being a core component to divination and needing to be there um, in order to operate because divination is like foreknowledge of the future, the ability to see the future through tapping into some 
thing that's happening underlying reality where chance is more meaningful and purposeful than it otherwise should be or than we think that it is. Yes, that's right. And then there are also times when context matters more. I mean, in the sense that I was just listening to your episode with Lee Lehman on horrory, and she was talking about how on, how on 9-11, you know, which was a terrible day skywise, I understand, um, she did a horrory reading for someone, a relationship reading that was great <laughs> because, you know, looking at the context of the houses and where, you know, the rulers were situated, it just you know, you can still, you can, the, the, the overall conditions are not the only factor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the context matters of like the question or, or what's emerging at that time, because there might be a person who's born in that time. So their mm -hmm. birth chart, you know, has relevance for the entire, their entire life. So let's say the next 70 or 80 years or something like that, versus yeah. if somebody's just asking a horrid question of like, will I get the job? That has a much shorter time span of just what that question was, and it's and a it's, limited frame of reference, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. um, but in that context, it's like I've kind of thought about natal astrology. Then, if it was even partially a form of divination, then then what is the question? There's like a question there, which is like, what is this person's life about? That is almost like what the birth chart is. And that's mm -hmm. one of the ways that I viewed natal astrology and tried to approach chart interpretation. And that's also one of the things that makes it tricky because it's like a chart that represents your entire life in some ways and, and yes. describes some of the standout points in your life that are, are unique to you and unique to your life compared to everybody else. Yes, exactly. And there's um, there's so much information in that one moment and you don't get a do-over which reminds me of something else that is kind of a core principle of divination for me, which is that you only ask the question once. Yes. So there's rules yeah. like that, right? What are some? So that's yeah. one of the rules for div. I mean, you know, quote unquote rules. To whatever extent you can impose rules and frameworks on divination, there are some specific rules like that, like one question at a time, or or only you can't yes. ask a question and then turn around and go to like another diviner and ask the same question like the next day or right, something. Right, right. And you know, I mean, I think it's not that you, it's not a moral rule, right? It's a practical rule. And I think that's because, um, well, for example, I was once doing a reading for someone and uh, as is so often the case, she wanted to know about her relationship and she wanted a nice answer. <laughs> I give people a lot of bad news. But, uh, but anyway, so she asked for the reading. I did the reading the news was not good news. And she started um, saying, can we draw again? And I said, well, what's your question now? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and she didn't have another question. And she kind of just took over the cards and started drawing cards. And I said, well, what are you doing? And sh she said, I'm looking for the answer I want, which I thought was a brutally honest way <laughs> of putting it. And And the thing is that, you know, with uh, it's 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 an the the metaphysical framework in which i see asking one question once is like this i mean i think that when we engage in the oracular moment it is a transaction it is almost like a magical ritual in that there is an exchange of one thing for the other. There's a sacrifice. And I think 
this is just my belief, that the thing that we sacrifice is our doubts. As we've said before, doubt or worry is the opposite of meaning. We exchange our doubts for meaning. And if you take back your sacrifice, you have to give back the meaning as well, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, if you, if you, uh, this is something that can only be done in the absence of doubt. And once you start to, um, start to ask the question again and again and increase the level of doubt, you're eroding the level of meaning. It's an inverse mm. ratio. Okay. That's the way I see it. Yeah, that seems really important. Um, and I mean, that kind of gets into two things. I mean, one, we don't always get what we want, and that can be true in both short-term things or small-term things, like will I get the job type type questions, let's say, versus um, if you're looking at a person's entire life, like does the person get what they want when it comes to, let's say, career, 10th house, or relationships, seventh house, or what they might ideally want in terms of, let's say, fourth house and their relationship with their parents or their fifth house and their children or what have you. And mm -hmm. that question of, um, I mean, kind of gets into one thing that you wanted to get into, which is like agency and how much agency do we have versus to what extent are things, certain things outside of our control. Um, mm -hmm. And how much can you change your fate, especially if you theoretically know about it ahead of time? Like how much are how much are things yeah. negotiable? Yes, and that that's a fascinating question to me. It really is because, you know, I mean, I used to use this analogy of tarot being like a map. It didn't tell you to go anywhere, but just gave you information. So, for example, you know, you want to get from point A to point B. Here are some roads you can take. Here's where you are. Here's how far you are. Uh, but you don't have to go there. You can just toss the map out the window if you want. That's what I used to say. And now I tend to think about agency in different ways. I mean, I, I've talked about it a little bit, the idea that you have to satisfy the shape, the quality of the moment, the shape of the archetype in some way. But I do believe that you have some choice over um, how that happens. I mean, much in the way that like, if you're... Um, if you're in a car and you're subject to motion sickness, if it's very different if you're in the driver's seat versus whether you're in the passenger seat, right? And um, you know, you're not going to be as ill if you're the one driving and you're, you know, even though you're in the exact same place, going in the exact same direction, doing the exact same thing practically. So, you know, and I think there's probably an analogy to this in the experience, for example, of the Saturn return, you know, how you experience this has some um you have some agency and control over that to some degree you know some degree some degree <laughs> so, sure. but but um and you know the other thing that well this is this is i'm not sure you want to go in this direction or not but i wanted to just tie back for a moment into this idea um which i talked a little bit about in 36 secrets of decanic dignity um being different from other forms of dignity and this is something I've not heard talked about very much other than from Austin, um, and who I think mentioned that Bonatti describes decanic dignity as having the, you know, it's just the resources that you have on your own, not through citizenship, not through um, through connections or, you know, the protection of a sovereign, et cetera, which you might, analogies you might apply to other kinds of dignity. 
but to what you have, your own resources thrown back on yourself. And to me, that is such a beautiful notion, the idea that both with the Deccans and with these minor arcana, uh, that they represent things that are within your control, small secrets, small acts, small, um, small mysteries that you have some agency over in ways you might not in other cases, like with the major arcana. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's really interesting and, and makes a lot of sense and ties back into the dignity. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, that issue of agency when it comes to divination is really important and really tricky. And, and one of the questions that comes up that I sometimes have in, in astrology is you mentioned the Saturn return. And mm-hmm. a question there is do some people have more agency in certain areas of their life than others? Mm-hmm. Like for some people, maybe certain areas are going to be more negotiable. Where if they have a thing come up and it's like a surmountable difficulty, and they're able to by applying themselves and working hard or improving themselves or something like that, you know, overcome that, and it becomes a classic "what doesn't kill you makes you stronger" type mm-hmm. thing in their life. Versus, you know, sometimes people really do run into a wall in some part of their life, and there's like a stop sign that says. You know, do not you cannot proceed further. You know, do <laughs> yeah. not pass go and collect two hundred dollars or what have you. You just <laughs> cannot move forward in that area of your life. And one of the things that's tricky as astrologers, and maybe just in terms of divination in general, is being able to know that there is a, a difference between the two and recognize those as two different scenarios. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, I mean, do you think that? I mean, I guess maybe that's part of my view, and maybe I should ask you if you view that as well. Like, are do you view certain areas which maybe are less negotiable for certain people, or do you think everything is more negotiable? um, Well, well, that's interesting. Um, That kind of does tie into this larger issue of fate. I mean, I tend to think, just philosophically, at a personal level, that. There's always a better and a worse response to any situation, and that you mm. do have a little bit of control over that. You know, it may not be very much, but you always have something, mm. um, and that's the way I read for people. So, you know, and and I, I was thinking about this because this is another question that was on our outline: the idea <laughs> of whether you can do mundane tarot in the same way you can do mundane astrology. You know, and the these taroscopes that are becoming very popular. Yeah, that's like exploded in the past few years on YouTube. And this is kind of a new thing, right? Or was this yeah. always a thing? Yeah, I like- think it's a new thing. It's a new thing. I mean, I've seen them around for some years, but now it's it's huge. And um And and that's just to define that for people. It's like um nowadays, you know, I used to search on YouTube for like horoscope for whatever sign, like Scorpio. Mm-hmm. February 2021 horoscope, and it would be like an astrologer talking about like where the planets are now relative to your sun sign or your rising sign or what have you. But what's become more popular and almost eclipsed that in the past few years is you'll search for like Scorpio February 2021 horoscope, and it'll be mm-hmm. somebody who is they have a deck of tarot cards and they'll shuffle them and then pull some cards and then interpret the symbolism of those cards and say that that applies to. Scorpio or to Leo or, or what yeah kind of, yeah it's very interesting and I I mean I think to some extent um, I don't know I mean I think to some extent it's plausible in the same way that you know um, reading a horoscope 
column, maybe based on the rising rather than the sun sign, I don't know, is plausible. But um, but I did one of those um, type things recently with my friends Eric Arneson and Andrew Watt, just to see what it would be like. Um, mm-hmm. I did the tarot portion, one one card for each month. And, um, and, you know, a lot of it kind of made sense based on what I anticipate in the year to come. And some of it didn't. So, you know, we'll see. But one thing I can say is that I got the tower for May. <laughs> so mm. <laughs> we'll be very interested to see what happens then. All right. You'll have to report back um, yes. with that experiment and let me know how, how it turned out so that, yeah, telescopes have be- become and blown up into a huge thing over the past few years. But and- the thing is, in general, I mean, I think I, I can say for sure that tarot is enormously powerful at an individual and subjective and contextual level. How you can extend that to the larger world beats me. You know, maybe yeah. you can, maybe you can't. And it's like, Sometimes with with horoscopes or like say like sun sign columns in newspapers, sometimes they are presented in that way. And I know there's some sun sign writers like Rick Levine, for example, who view it almost as a form of divination because for some of them it used to be like you only had like a paragraph to tell the person like what their day is going to be like or what have you or what they might experience. And he always viewed that more as a form of divination to write something poetic that was tied into actual astrological transits but how that hit with each individual yes. person who read that that there was this random or chance like and sort of divinatory um part of that that was Yes unique. and it's it's very interesting because it almost shifts some of the divinatory responsibility onto the reader right mm. you know because when you and and that's instructive in a way it helps you remember that it's not just about the cards. It's not just about the diviner. It's about the person receiving it, and you know what they bring to it and what they hear, which can be quite different from what you said. <laughs> yeah, um, and there's two points about that. Um, I mean, because I have a, like a tension there, though, because with there's that, but then there's also like let's say mundane astrology, where you know sometimes there's like an alignment of planets that. Mm. You could have calculated two thousand years ago, like that in March of twenty twenty, there was going to be a pileup of planets yes. in the sign of Capricorn, and that looked like a pretty <laughs> tough, pretty gnarly lineup of planets. I was planets. just going to say, yeah. And you know, at that time, like in the U.S. and around the world, like the pandemic had fully broken out, and every every place went into lockdown. Mm-hmm. And you know, there were some astrologers who saw that ahead of time. Well, I mean, pretty much all astrologers who did like year ahead forecasts knew that was going to be a tough alignment, mm-hmm. even if they didn't articulate the specifics. But there were some astrologers like Andre Barbeau, for example, who eight or ten years earlier had done a whole published a study on pandemics right. where he looked at alignments in the past and which ones had lined up with pandemics and said, based on this repeating cycle in history, this seems to mean that there's going to be another pandemic around. The 2020 2021 timeframe. And that was, you know, turned out to be a good call. And he died, I think, like a year before the pandemic hit. But there's. It's remarkable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that strikes me as a more objective um, thing that's occurring out there independent of us, which it almost seems different than the more divinatory thing, which requires participation. Um, on the part of like asking a question or mm. you know prompting the reader to 
shuffle the cards for you and and pull them and tell you what will happen or even like casting a horary chart which requires you know looking or casting a chart for a specific question or what have you and maybe that's part of the tension i still have with is astrology just divination or is there another component that's out there that's that's independent and is part of some other natural thing yeah. that's occurring in the cosmos well maybe it's just a question of scale i mean it's interesting you use that word participation because there's this idea of participation mystique you know the idea that we are involved in the world at some level right you know um there is no separation between you and me and all of matter um which is what makes divination possible uh, that's a idea by levi Brule, i think but the you know and there's there's something that that makes me think of which is that you know what if the really big stuff is what we're able to pick up on, you know, in an objective or out independent way, you know, like that that like that cluster of planets in Capricorn and what that did to everyone. Whereas, you know, maybe at I don't know at a smaller level, there are things that are that are negotiable for everybody. But one thing I do remember from that March 2020 period, well. All of that was going on in the sky. I was doing reading after reading because naturally everyone was freaking out. And over and over again, like, you know, people would ask, tell me about what's going on in my life. How am I going to get through this? And I did any number of past, present, future type spreads. And the present one, over and over again, I saw the tower over mm -hmm. and over again. So, you know, and to me, that is tarot sort of expressing itself in a mundane way. This is happening to everybody. And, you know, especially because it's a major arcanum, the tower, there is very little you can do about it. Okay. I'm trying yeah. to find the tarot in the Rider Waite deck. What number is it? Major you know? 16. There it is. Let me share the screen for those watching the video version. So this is the fun card that you're not <laughs> That you're not not looking forward to in May yeah. in your personal readings. So could you describe yeah. what we're looking at so for the audio people? Yeah, it's 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 known as the lightning struck tower originally. Um and what we see is uh, this this card with this stark black lightning, uh stark black background with a stone tower and a crown that's being struck from it by a by a uh by a blast of forked lightning. And it's on fire, and uh, two people are falling out of the tower upside down, which is why I've mentioned that I've crawled down the stairs head first in order to diffuse <laughs> this card uh, okay. in a sympathetic magic kind of way. But you know, it's an it's it is the most stressful card in the deck. I think it's pretty fair to say. I don't think too many people would would argue with that. And you know what I was feeling when uh when that card kept coming up for people was that it was uh representing just this enormous disruption in everyone's routine that there was nothing you can do about that was um an act of god and in fact that card in the marseille deck is called uh le maison dieu the house of god and it does have that um that affect of uh something that's completely outside of your control Okay, and this and was it's violent too. It's it, it's violent and sudden and disruptive and stressful, and it cor corresponds in the modern system with the planet Mars. Okay, and this is something that was coming up a lot for you in the present and card pulls in March of exactly. twenty twenty last year when the pandemic hit. And so it's it's interesting because then, of course, 
astrologically, the planet Mars, all of that ramped up when the planet Mars went into Capricorn and joined mm -hmm. Jupiter and Saturn and Pluto um, right. last right. year in the February, March, April timeframe. And it makes me think of like um, in the ancient world and like Platonism, especially, but also Stoicism, the notion of like the anima mundi and like the soul of the world and, and this notion from the Timaeus that the cosmos itself was like a living animal or a living being that has like a visible body, which is like the visible world, but there's also like an invisible um, soul that's infused throughout it. Yes. And so there's like a consciousness where we're all like living inside this living animal and it's thinking about what's going on within itself constantly. Mm -hmm. Which is us. It's conscious. Yeah. Right. It's conscious yeah. so that the universe mm -hmm. itself is actually conscious instead of just being this sort of dead, inanimate thing, which is how, as modern people, we're often used to thinking about it at this point, I think, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. I mean, I think it's very useful to, um, regardless of what your belief system is, to to suspend that disbelief, you know, um, in in the context of a reading, so that you can um, open yourself to the idea that the that the universe is animate, alive, conscious, and talking back to you. Right, but that so and so maybe that's why um, something like that could happen. That there could be this like astrological alignment that's happening that's indicating like bad times, like major stuff going on in the world in March mm -hmm. of 2020, but then also in some of your card readings, there's an echo of similar symbolism because that's it's right. like this consciousness or thought process that's going on within the living cosmos that's like echoing or um, echoing the same sentiment or the same thoughts that are happening at that time about something that's happening to a lot of people. Everybody, everybody. I mean, it reminded me a lot of, you know, what Jung talked about before World War One, where he was having all those dreams of the river of blood, you know, mm. famously, and not knowing what that was. But um, but yeah, yeah, I think that it felt that way to me. It felt like something that was not particularly personal, but uh something that was inevitable and happening to everybody. Right. So so it's like that's possibly something, and that could connect us with what is the mechanism underlying not just astrology, but also other forms of divination. And that's also kind of where Jung was taking things to a certain extent with synchronicity and trying to like come up with an explanatory principle for astrology. Um, there's also a separate issue with astrology, which is that uh, I know Austin has mentioned this, for example, where there is a somewhat causal component in, for example, the sun and the movements of the sun, mm. and it's actual physical effects on earth through the seasons and through different levels of like light um, that the sun emits which is often interpreted mm -hmm. symbolically but may have some physical or physiological component as well and while mm -hmm. we cannot say that there's a physical mechanism that would explain other planets having a causal effect on earth at this point um, the notion that there could be some sort of causal factor with astrology would be something that could set it outside of or make it somewhat unique from other forms of divination where we we definitely don't think like that the tarot card is like causing the event that's happening in your life at that time <laughs> when you pull the card. Well, you know, yeah, I mean I I I don't know. I I tend to think that what's the you know, I, as far as these questions of cause go, uh what's the analogy? Uh 
is it something that Chris Warnock uses, I think, that has to do with, you know, it's not like the clock on the wall uh, is causing the time to be what it is, right? It's simply reflecting. And and I think that, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think I think of these things in a in a very hermetic way in the sense that we all reflect the same pattern, right? As above, so below. And that but the extension beyond that is that we co-create it. So, you know, and I think that that's interesting to think about that <laughs> because we're human, we have this illusion of free will, which I always tell people is constructive to use to deal with your illusion of fate. There are these two things that are intertwined um, and that, you know, your perceptive, your perception is always shifting from one to the other. Yeah, I, I like that. And part of the co-creation in astrology, or one of the ways that that comes up, uh, can be in things like electional astrology, like choosing mm-hmm. when to act and making a choice about initiating an action or starting a journey or a business or getting married under on one day under one alignment of planets versus doing it, you know, a month later under a different alignment of planets or what have you, and and sometimes having a choice between those, but also sometimes even when you have a choice. Very quickly, you realize that even that choice has its own limitations in terms of you can't wait ten or twenty or thirty years for to the get perfect, ma- yeah. yeah, for the perfect alignment. You're you're constrained by what is your time frame for when you have to act and doing the best that you can within that context. Yes, it's interesting because you know I I am one of your Patreon subscribers and I listen to your electional work all the time, which I think is great. I've used them your elections and Lisa's uh, many times. But I often combine that with divination as well, you know, just Mm. to check, to double check my work. Um, And many a time I've had to just toss out a perfectly fine election because the divination was so crappy. But, Mm. um, But I think it's actually quite useful to combine methodologies like that from time to time. Yeah. Well, and that also um, ties in something which is a point that I want to raise about one issue, which is two people being born at the same time and they're f- but still manifesting the same chart and the same symbolism in different ways. That yes. is still yes. archetypally correct, but but different in the specifics. Um, versus also in that case you were just talking about sometimes a good electional chart or a good standalone electional chart that has a good alignment of planets. If that falls in a bad sector of your chart, or if that hits your chart wrong as a transit, then that's not necessarily going to be a good electional chart for you as an individual, mm-hmm. um, even if it might be good for somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I actually, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I meant to ask you at some point. Um, you know, you always put that caveat check against your own chart, and I wanted you to delineate what that meant a little bit. So thank you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean that's the other we do with the electional charts each month, especially for the auspicious elections podcast that Lisa and I do, where we give you four charts that are the best standalone electional charts for each month. We do fifty percent, like half of the work for you, which is just finding a good standalone chart. Where, for example, actually more than that because you mentioned which risings it would be okay for. Yeah, that's true. I mean, because like like this month, for example, our electional chart is on like the twentieth or twenty first of February when. Mercury stations direct, and we picked a Gemini rising chart where Mercury is the ruler of the ascendant, and it's stationing direct in Aquarius, and it's conjunct mm-hmm. both of the benefics. I think Venus and Jupiter. It's conjunct Jupiter and applying to Jupiter mm. through a conjunction or something like that. So just symbolically, 
if you are the one assigned to the first house, which is Mercury, and Mercury is you in the chart, and Mercury is moving towards a conjunction with Jupiter in a day chart in the ninth house, then it indicates positive things and success and the affirmation of that which you're initiating at that time for you, the one initiating it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. But that's half of it, which is just a standalone chart in and of itself and finding that, which takes a lot of work. But the other half of that is looking at how the that chart as a transit interacts with your birth chart for you as an individual because if for example like mercury in that chart is exactly conjunct let's say the degree of mars if you're born mm-hmm. during the day or the degree of saturn if you're born at night then that may not be a good chart for you because it may activate parts of your birth chart that represent some of the more difficult or challenging things um, yes. for you to deal with in your life yes Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and that's interesting because, you know, it's funny, I often I don't generally check against my birth chart, but I will pull a card. <laughs> and it's funny okay. that uh, you know, I mean, I I wonder if I just wonder if that's um whether that's in some way anathema to to the process because it's two such very different systems, but I do think you can kind of get the results you need. Um, by by mixing it up a little. Sure. Yeah. Um, all right. So, where have we answered all the questions of like the universe at this point? Where are we at? Is, astro- <laughs> is astrology divination, or is astrology uh, natural science? Is astrology just like tarot, or is astrology different? What's our what are our, do we have like final conclusions that we hard and fast answers here for <laughs> people that are still with us? Eighty percent, yes. <laughs> okay, eighty percent. Eighty percent is pretty good, honestly. Um, So we've raised a lot of questions and a lot of things for people to think about. A lot of these Mm -hmm. things don't have great, complete, like one hundred percent answers, but they're they're things that people should think about because it can inform your practice and inform how you approach applying some of these from things from a practical standpoint or an ethical standpoint. Did we did we start to get into ethics a little bit, like the ethics of divination? A little bit. We talked about a little bit. Telling people the future that that different practitioners have different ethical guidelines or or boundaries or things that they think would be ethical versus like not ethical. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps mm-hmm. I think it, it varies maybe from practitioner to practitioner. I think that's true. I mean, and it's interesting because uh, <laughs> this work of divination is, I think, essentially amoral. At some level, you know, you're just going for information above and right. beyond things. Um, and it's like, a, it's like a technology or a thing, like a like a microwave doesn't have like morals. It's just like a microwave, and you could. Right. It's use a tool, and it's to- mercurial in character. You know, it's like you know, it's it can be used for good or ill. It's simply information, and it's simply playing the game. Mm. But that said, I don't think you can. I mean, I. As I said, I mostly just try to answer the question, but in terms of living your own life, you still, um, I don't know, I think each person has to decide for themselves what what is ethical and not. And I do... Besides trying to an- to answer the question, I do try to focus on harm reduction as much as possible. You know, I mean, particularly the reduction of harm related to overfatalism. 
<laughs> that's the one I specialize in. But, you know, but also due to the possibility of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Exactly. Because first of all, because I don't think that that's the way the world works. But secondly, because I think a lot of damage can be done by it. Um, but also, I think that, you know, there's a there's something to be said for just bringing in your common sense as a human being, a non-spiritual practitioner. And, you know, and just every once in a while, I will just take the fortune teller's hat off, metaphorically, and say, look, as a person, this is what I think. And I will just, you know, just put it out there that you know, hopefully at that point, there's enough trust between me and whoever I'm talking to that they'll accept what I say, or at least understand the spirit in which it's given. Right, and and you, your primary and first and foremost thing is is sort of like the Hippocratic dictum of of do no harm. Yes, and you're trying you're trying to fundamentally underlying everything else and everything else aside, help people and 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 provide a beneficial service or advice to people that's going to help them in their life rather than be something that's going to be harmful in some way. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that's the the nature of the medicine, you know, that you that you do your best um, to to help whatever the situation is. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's just all sorts of stuff we could get into about that in terms of the the morals or or immorals and some of the downsides with divination and some of the ways um, maybe divination has been or could be used for for not great things, but it is kind of this mm -hmm. neutral thing or technology that exists out there that that blurs the line between past and present and future and could be used and applied in a number of different ways so often And I also think that it's something that's very unique to the human experience in that we are storytellers you know we are mm. there's something that I jotted down in our notes about talking about destiny versus narrative and you know and the the idea that we create our own stories we choose where the beginnings and the ends are and um and that is something that is hmm, has to do i think with our agency in the world our ability to determine our fates for ourselves it has to do with our willingness to shape the story to our own design mm. yeah I, I like that i like that a lot mm -hmm. actually in, in like my studies of Hellenistic astrology and studying ancient astrology in the first few centuries CE, like the first and second and third and fourth century, Stoicism was really in vogue during that time in the Roman Empire. And a lot of the astrologers during that period, they will say the purpose of studying astrology and studying a birth chart is to know the future. That way you know what you have to accept about your fate mm -hmm. and you can prepare yourself ahead of time. And that for some of the Stoic astrologers was literally the purpose of, of astrology or learning the future was just like preparing you for both the good things and the bad things so that you can adopt a sort of moderate equilibrium and not be knocked off by either of them. Um, whether you become hit by something negative that throws you into depression or you get something good that makes you, you know, overjoyed. Yes. Yes. And I think that that is, you know, a fundamental lesson I take from the Wheel of Fortune, which is Kind of a, I don't know, a presiding spirit for me. Um, the idea that, you know, things change. The only constant is the change. And that, again, as I was saying before, there is a better and a worse way to respond to it. 
Um, but, you know, but <laughs> to me, the real joy of this practice is to be in conversation with fate, you know, whether or not it is um, a lecture or a dialogue or a debate or small talk or argument or whatever it is, you know, to me, this thing we do is about being able to um, not only learn about fate, but to have a say in the discussion on the part of fate, to to participate, to um, to be deeply enmeshed, to be at the hub of the wheel. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And mm -hmm. like one of the things with astrology that I always come back to is even if everything was predetermined. Um, there's a limitation that diviners have about knowing exactly what will ha happen in the future because astrology is, and divination in general, is just archetypally predictive. And because it's dealing with archetypes, there's a range of different possible manifestations. And even though you can be pretty certain, even though you can get to a certain level of certainty with astrology and a le level of specificity, there's always going to be this um, ambiguity and this this extent to which you you don't know the exact manifestation, and therefore you have to proceed as if you have choice or some ability to push it in one direction or another, in one more let's say constructive direction or another. Um, yes, I call yeah. that archetypal drift. I sort of feel like you know there is this there is a flex, there is a an ease, there is uh, some margin for error within the expression. And um, whether as a magician or a diviner or just a human being, you get a little bit of say in determining how that comes into your life. Right. Um, yeah. So I, th I think that's important for all astrologers to be aware of because it also humbles you a little bit. There's like a sense of humbling of even though divination can sometimes seem empowering or can give a person a sense of power and sometimes that can go to people's heads um mm -hmm. they're also always also on the flip side of that needs to be a humbleness of even if you can see the outlines of the future not um being fully aware of all of the specifics and therefore there's still being this like range of manifestations that are outside of your control so that it should humble you to some extent and and it shouldn't go to your head Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think there's a model in Kabbalah that I like a lot where the, you know, the the Kabbalistic tree of life has these 10 spheres. And the uh the bottom of the tree, the 10th sphere, the bottom is our real world. The ninth sphere, just about that is known as Yesod. It's known as the warehouse of in the storehouse of images. It's kind of like the blueprint. And then above that are two spheres known as the spheres of prophecy, Netzach and Hod. Um, one of the spheres has to do with ecstatic revelation, that kind of prophecy, divine downloads, those sorts of things. And the other is hod, which is ours, indirect interpretation, getting messages from a larger presence or divine or whatever it is you want to call it, that requires a certain amount of humility and knowing that you don't have all the answers, but using um, your your capacity to interpret your hermeneutics to try and make sense of the signs you've been given mm. with humility. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. 
Um, I think that might be a perfect stopping point. I know there's <laughs> lots of things we could keep talking about forever, and I'm really enjoying this conversation. <laughs> Me too. Um, but yeah. since it's been two and a half hours, um, maybe. <laughs> Maybe we're maybe we're good. I hope you know. As soon as we stop recording, we'll probably remember a bunch of stuff that would have been cool to go into. No doubt. But I did want to plug your book, um, Thirty Six Secrets: A Decanic Journey Through the Minor Arcana of the Tarot. Where can people get a hold of this? Uh, yes, anywhere. It's um, I prefer it if you get it from the Lulu Bookstore because I do better. But you certainly can get it on Amazon or Book Depository or Barnes and Noble or any of those places. Okay, so lulu.com is, and mm -hmm. I, I think that's where I ordered mine and it showed up pretty quickly. So that's good mm -hmm. to know that they can order it from there or they can get it from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever else. Mm -hmm. And the focus of this um, was that was two things. One uh, that we didn't get into that much was that there are associations between the 36 traditional decans and their rulers with mm -hmm. 36 specific tarot cards, right? Yes, exactly. The numeric, the decanic minor arcana numbered two through 10 in the four suits. Okay. And you actually went on something called a, a decan journey or a walkthrough over the course of a year? That's right. That's something that I had only heard of through Gordon White of RuneSoup and through Austin, of course. And, um, you know, and the book is very obviously inspired by 36 Faces. I'm quite open about that. Um, but I felt that, um, you know, and, and the thing about 36 Faces is that it is, you know, it's an astrology book with that is well informed by tarot. And what I wanted to do was kind of the inverse of that, really a tarot book with some uh, some some basis in the astrology, so uh, so that hence the title really. I mean, thirty six faces, of course, faces is another word for decans, and thirty six secrets. Secrets is just a translation of arcana, as in the minor arcana. So um, it is intended to reconcile, to explore, to provide personal narrative and magical guidance and comparison between the cards. Um, for each of these minor uh, minor cards, which are which are um, favorites of mine, and you went through an entire year starting in like March of 2019, where you That's pulled right. one card per day, two cards per day, always. Well, I always call uh, I always pull two cards a day, but the focus of that work was to um, to concentrate on those decanic minors, um, and to uh, to try and figure out what the character of each moment represented by those cards was. Okay, so as a further explanation or exploration of the meaning of the cards and accessing them through the symbolism of the Deccan and the the Deccan ruler for each of those cards. Right. And you started in March of 2019, and then you wrapped up. Which I was thinking <laughs> it was really like a hell of a time to wrap up a year later in March of 2020. Yes, exactly. In fact, I remember I was just. I was the last trip I took. I was at the Northwest Tarot Symposium on that uh, early weekend in March, and I was writing the last essay on the plane on the way back um, before, you know, going wow. home and staying home. Yeah, that's a, a way. That's a, a wild way to end that project. And then you spent the next several months uh, working on the book, and then you finished it and released it finally at the very, very end of 2020. Yes, yes. I I thought it would be good to even though it's out there as blog posts, I thought, you know, it made a lot more sense to kind of go over it, make it coherent, make sure that every chapter had 
the same elements within it, you know, had each one had some reference to the original, you know, to Picatrix and Agrippa, make sure each one had some reference to other cards that are related within the set of Minor Arcana, make sure, you know. So, um, and each one has sort of everyday um, iterations of how that card's shown up for me. So kind of like we did with the Five of Pentacles, see a range of manifestations. And then, of course, at the end, I I indulged myself with some poetry <laughs> and uh, tried to find something that was in one way or another um, reminiscent or evocative of the nature of the card as I saw it. Brilliant. Um, well, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, it, it seems like it goes well with your previous book, which is the Llewellyn book. Um, what? How, how do they complement each yes, other? How would so you describe it? Tar- tarot Correspondences is a reference book. It is uh, basically a way of just laying out those Golden Dawn uh, correspondences, this 120-year-old, 110-year-old correspondences that underlie every modern tarot deck. And I, I did it because I kind of just wanted an external hard drive <laughs> so I wouldn't have to remember everything. Right. Um, so, you know, it's probably the same for your Hellenistic astrology <laughs> in a way. Um, yeah, the very retro way of storing information <laughs> in like pieces on uh, leaves of paper of dead trees that you can put on your shelf. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. That's exactly it. So, yeah. so yes, and that has been great. It's in its like third printing, I think. Uh, it's um and it's been good because I think, you know, there are correspondence books out there but nothing that had really kind of pulled it together for tarot. I mean, there's, you know, there's 777, which magicians use. and uh, But this is, this is something that was specifically intended to be helpful for the modern tarot world. And it has ended up doing that. There have been people who have, you know, drawn decks from it, created decks from it, created uh, magical work from it. And I'm really pleased with that because that's that was its intent. And whereas this one... 36 Secrets is very much more my voice. It's um, it's my everything I have to say about the Minor Arcana, which, as I said, I have a, a real fondness for. Uh, and it's intended to be um, kind of a more qualitative deep dive into what these cards might mean in a way that um, Terra Correspondences is really just the ingredients for producing your own meanings. This one is a much more ruminative and personal book. Perfect. And you have another book coming out here before too long, right? Oh, yes. Yes. So um, so Fortune's Wheelhouse, the esoteric tarot podcast, which I host with Mel Moline, began with 78 card-by-card episodes going through each card and unpacking the symbolism in the Rider-Waite-Smith and Thoth decks. So um, we never quite figured out how to do transcriptions, so uh, so instead we went in the most laborious and time-consuming and difficult way possible and wrote a book instead, uh, basically with all of the information that is included in those initial 78 episodes, which continue to, um, to help people get started on their tarot journeys. And we didn't really know what a huge undertaking it was thinking we'd already done the work in those 78 episodes, but it turns out that we had a lot to say. And I think it's like 700 pages, 600, 700 pages, something like that. Wow. Yeah, it'll be good. March 8th, I think, is when it's out. Okay, and that's being something published like that. by Llewellyn. That's Llewellyn. The, mm-hmm. the title is Tarot Deciphered, Decoding Esoteric Symbolism in Modern Tarot. Yes, although I personally think of it as the 
Fortune's Wheelhouse Guide to Esoteric Tarot. <laughs> okay, perfect. And um, in terms of other stuff that you have going on, of course, people can Google and search for Fortune's Wheelhouse Esoteric Tarot Podcast. Um, they can find your Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash fortunes wheelhouse. Um, you also do uh, the Living Tarot Online Tarot Class, which is like an online class for tarot, which is on your mm-hmm. website, which is tsusanchang.com. And that seems like a good spot, your website, where people can find out a bunch of your other work. It seems like you have a lot of different things going on. That is true. That is true. And the course itself is not particularly correspondence-based. It's more about, well, many of the things we talked about, really, about um, learning to read tarot into your everyday life. Okay, brilliant. Um, You also have an Etsy shop where you design different um, covers and different things related to tarot, right? Yes, yes. It's it's um, it's cases for tarot decks, spread cloths, and perfumes, custom perfumes that are based on people's sun, moon, and rising, and also uh, zodiacal perfumes. Brilliant. And, then and that's uh, also- www.etsy.com slash shop slash tarotista. Perfect. And then you're also on Twitter, and that was actually where I first saw your announcement about the new book, so it's a good mm-hmm. place to follow you, which is on Twitter at T. Susan Chang. Right. Brilliant. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today and for doing this episode with me. I really appreciate it and really, really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. It's been um, absolute delight and uh, and an honor to be on a show I've so enjoyed for so long. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. Thanks to the patrons who, for supporting our work, and uh, that's it for this episode. So we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to the patrons who supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock. Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Michelle Marillot, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, and Issa Sabah. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening online May 27th through the 31st, 2021. Find out more information at norwak.net. The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which you can find out more information about at mountainastrologer.com. The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, which you can find out more information about at honeycomb.co. Also, the Portland School of Astrology, more information at portlandastrology.org. The Astral Gold Astrology app, available for both iPhone and Android, available at astrogold.io. And finally, the primary software program that we use on episodes of the Astrology Podcast is called Solar Fire Astrology Software, which is available at alabe.com. And you can get a 15% discount with the promo code AP15.